if you have a very strong environment with strong norms, you can actually like constrain a lot of those underlying dispositions. But in a, a completely free kind of libertarian environment, those things will will be like much more likely to manifest. Things will be like heritable traits will be more likely to express themselves. Then you will have to pay for for the the fallout if you want to live in a functional society. But you can say people can do what they want and um, maximize individual liberties. But then you know you also have to accept like okay you have to be fiscally liberal and, and pay for for the, the the side effects and the consequences of that. You know a lot of a lot of social problems and a lot of social solutions are are kind of bottom up problems, cultural problems, interpersonal problems. And you can't just sign a bill or or give people money and hope that you know hope hope that this will will change things. Hi hi welcome welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today I'm speaking with Rob Henderson. It's the third time he's on the show. He's the first person to come here for the third time, and according to him, it's the longest podcast he's ever done. And there's a lot of good reasons for that. We discuss media, TikTok, policy solutions to quote-unquote social problems, what that really means for something to be a social problem, noblesse oblige, Eric Bairn, the idea of transactional analysis, and what that looks like in practice and in your everyday life. If any of those sound like things that interest you, and you can decide so after the show too, then a great way to help the show is to let a friend know. The odds are, if you like the show, and you have friends who have the same habits, the same interests, then that person's going to like the show too. And you're not only helping us, you're helping your friend out too. So that's the one thing that I ask. And without further ado, here's Rob Henderson. Alright, so I'm going to do something a little bit different this episode, because we were just talking about something... Uh, we were talking about how I think a lot of media is going towards the extremes in terms of length, in terms of, you know, three hour podcasts, like hopefully this one and 30 minute TikToks. And, you know, same thing, same thing with television series binging versus, you know, once again, TikTok, these kind of clips, uh, Instagram and so on. And yeah, do you, do you see, do you see that trend kind of, do you know, do you think like how far it can go? Do you think it'll keep on progressing? Uh, I mean, I, you know, we, we were talking about this earlier that, that, uh, this has been an ongoing trend. And, you know, I, I, I talked to you about a study about how podcasts seem to be getting longer than most popular podcasts each year. The most popular ones seem to actually be creeping into, uh, longer and longer durations. And, you know, your podcast is one of them. And then, you know, Rogan is probably the most famous podcaster. His, you know, he's famously going three, four plus hours. But other podcasts continue to get longer too. And so this, this pattern is interesting to me because, you know, we have these podcasts that keep getting longer. And then we have TikTok, which is, I think, the fastest growing social media app at the moment. And that is, you know, well known for, you know, 15, 20 second clips. And this is, yeah, that, that people seem to be sort of drifting in one direction or another where they either want like really fast, snappy content or they want to hear sort of these long, yeah, sometimes meandering, but interesting conversations. Uh, and the sort of middle ground is getting hauled out. Right. So, so there's like two interesting angles to this, right? There, there's the sort of uh, social constructionists and then the like the revealed preferences angle. I think in this case, actually, the truth is a mix of both, where the first one is something like, 
you know, the media and the, the economic incentives are, are shaping these platforms to push people towards, or like in general, like these platforms have an interest in kind of pushing people and shaping their behavior towards these extremes. And then the other is that like people always wanted this kind of content is just that there was like no easy way of providing it to them, right? There, there was no way, you know, in, in the era of like VCRs and cable, there was no way of sort of providing people with the 15 second clips that they were going, they specifically were going to be interested in, right? Right. Yeah. So there's a question of whether this is a top down or bottom up phenomenon where people always sort of would have bifurcated into, you know, either 30 second clips or three hour podcasts. Uh, and, you know, for whatever reason, throughout the 20th century, we were all sort of forced to watch, yeah, like 23 minute sitcoms or, you know, 30 minutes with commercials or, you know, 47 minute dramas. Uh, and now, uh, there's been like an interesting, uh, situation with uh, the different streaming platforms where Netflix will drop full episodes, you know, an entire season. Uh, at once. And so people will binge those. Hulu's doing this. But then there are some others that uh, probably appeal. There's probably some overlap with the Netflix audience, but but not a lot. Not, a, you know, it's not it's not a complete overlap. It's not a, a you know, a full correlation between them in which uh, platforms like HBO will still only drop one episode a week, despite having all of the episodes available. They'll still do once a week. And I think this is a sort of a way for them to stand out and differentiate themselves and retain some of their their prestige. I think yeah, HBO is probably the most um, sort of prominent among the prestige TV networks. So yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's, it's sort of interesting what's happening here. I mean, you see this with with other um, other sort of cultural trends, social trends too. I think obesity is one, especially in America, where we do have you know the largest percentage of overweight and obese people. But then we also have I, you know, I think I haven't seen data on this, but my, my impression is that the U.S. also has the, the most robust and energized sort of fitness gym, sort of gym bro culture, people lifting weights, people into CrossFit, uh, people, you know, experimenting with different kinds of diets and optimizing uh, their their physiques. And other countries do this, too, but but nothing like like America. I mean, I, I would imagine like the, the sort of fitness channels on YouTube and all of these sort of influencers, um, you know, the majority of them are, or rather they're, they're disproportionately American relative to people who, who have access to, to Instagram and TikTok and so on. So yeah, people are sort of, uh, uh, drifting into, into these extremes, uh, on a variety of, of measures. Right. But is that, is that sort of a media thing or is that like an actual, <clears throat> you know, rates of fitness thing in real life? Right. Like I would, my, my intuition, I don't have data on this either, but my intuition was that, you know, like the top 5% most fit people in like Kenya is, are still going to be more fit than the top 5% of people in America. Uh, although I might be wrong. I'm not sure about that. Maybe I'll we'll add something to the show notes after after uh, the show. I don't know. I mean, I guess it, it would depend on what, what fit means here. But I, I would say like the, in, in terms of a let's say like a percentage of the population, at least among, you know, like, like Western countries, you know, sort of developed Western countries, uh, America probably has the highest rates of overweight and obese people, but also the highest uh, levels or the highest percentage of the population who regularly goes to the gym and has some kind of peculiar diet to, to optimize uh, their, their physique and their fitness. Um, but, but yeah, I guess like more, more broadly, this is probably happening too. I mean, 
that that people are are drifting in in one direction or another. I think this is um you know, America is kind of a fat-tailed country, but I think other other countries are drifting in that direction too just because you know, America America has such a, a strong sort of cultural presence and and influences these other countries too. Yeah, okay. I'm just as a proxy, I'm looking up uh, Olympic Olympic medals per capita. Okay. And uh, okay, so we have Norway, Slovenia, Austria, Sweden, Switzerland, Finland, Netherlands, Estonia, Canada, and New Zealand hmm. as the top ten. And then the states is twenty uh, fourth. Wow. Okay. Well. Well. You know. And then then maybe uh, maybe my impression is is misguided. Oh, yeah. I mean, Olympic gold medals. That's probably a, a decent proxy, but. Actually, now that I'm thinking about this, it might yeah. it might not be. Right? Why, why is that? Because uh, you know, it, a lot of it is just based on what sports are counted, right? Like S- Norway, Slovenia, Austria, all of these are the countries that are very good at like obscure winter sports, right? Yeah, yeah, like luge or whatever, like like right. all of, like the random like winter sports. Mm-hmm. Or, or like skiing, which I guess is like less yeah. obscure. All of the, the like, sports, like the sort of affirmative action sports for white people. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it might be Northern okay. Europeans. If, yeah. You, yeah, if we looked at all of the, you know, Olympic medalists and and sort of like the, I mean, you know, strongman competitions and a- anything associated with contests of, of physical formidability. Um, yeah, I, I wonder if, if America is... You know, at least, at least, relatively well presented. But, but anyway, yeah, yeah. To, to the earlier point, I just think that the the phenomenon of of like podcasts, social media, and everything drifting in in one direction or another. I'd be curious to know, like, if this is if this is a sort of a like dispositional. Is this like an individual differences thing where where people generally prefer one form of content or over another, or if people. Uh, you know, a single individual likes both forms of content where they, they like 30 second clips and they like through our podcast, but, but they generally don't like, you know, 30 minute sitcoms. So, you know, are these like two different groups or is it the same group and they just prefer two different forms of, of media content? So, so my intuition is that they're different groups. Okay. Right. It's just, just in terms of the people I know, but like mm-hmm. that, that's obviously not very representative. So mm-hmm. yeah, this would be, you know, Pew Research. I know at least one person from Pew Research follows me now. Okay. Um, get get to it, guys. <laughs> yeah, that would be that would definitely be a very interesting, very interesting survey, and, and you know, like very news relevant, right? With a with a debate over whether to ban TikTok. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't have TikTok, and a lot of a lot of people, a lot of Zoomers especially, have told me to get on it. And I, it's just too weird for me. I, it makes me uh, nauseated to look at the videos. There's something about them that um, gives me like some like vertigo or something. But um, I know people who who like podcasts and who are also on TikTok. Um, but I think generally, yeah, we we you know the kinds of people that you and I are around are, are you know probably drifting more in the direction of sort of long form, dense content uh, rather than rather than soundbite kind of things. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be that would be an interesting an interesting survey of uh, you know what what people generally prefer. Right. Uh, I'm actually looking for someone to do this right now, and, and you're I think like an order of magnitude more popular than I am at least. So I, I think this would probably be good advice for you too. Is to like look for someone to basically find clips of you, uh, like from this podcast too, right, and just put them on TikTok. So yeah, um, I, I know Ryan Grimm has someone to do this. this. Right. Yeah. Like, um, 
Yeah, I think that that's kind of like the best way to square it. Like, I personally also am kind of like actively repulsed by something like TikTok. Uh, but, you know, like at the end of the day, people, there are there are interesting people I know who do enjoy TikTok, who do use it, who who do kind of gain, I think, real insights about human nature from kind of participating in it as well. So yeah, I, I would recommend uh, I would recommend eventually finding someone, hiring someone to do that as well. Although I'm not having a great ton of success finding someone to do that right now either. <laughs> yeah, several people have have brought this up uh, where they've said you know even if you don't um, produce original content for TikTok, you can have you know some social media uh, uh, guru or expert like yeah chop up some podcast clips chop up some youtube appearances and so forth and just um yeah put those up and create a channel that way and i have seen like uh um clips of myself you know people have sent me clips people who are on tiktok say hey i saw you on like like jordan peterson for example oh i saw this clip of you talking about dating apps on jordan peterson's podcast and yeah that, that to me like the fact that that reaches me uh, indicates, you know, something about its, its potential and its popularity. Um, but yeah, I just, uh, I, I, it's not my, you know, it's not on the top of my to-do list is, uh, you know, figuring out TikTok. I, I, I prefer spending time doing, doing other things, but, but maybe eventually, eventually maybe I'll, I'll get around to it. I'm, I'm also skeptical that TikTok will continue to be as popular as it is, but that may just be sort of my, you know, my, my sort of, uh, like misguided hope. Wait, really? Okay. So you think TikTok is going... What do you mean by not as popular as it is? I just don't know if it has staying power. Um, you know, the, the 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 TikTok clips are. I, I mean, I think a, some people do get a, you know addicted and they're really interested in it, but broadly, it doesn't seem to have penetrated the culture as much as I would have expected. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I've I've seen I've seen certain uh, like like graphs, some trends indicating that it may have peaked and it's sort of leveling off. Um, I, I don't know what it is exactly, but something just, it's just an intuition that it's not going to get much more popular than it is now. And it, it may have peaked and, and will perhaps decline. But again, this may just be sort of, I'm in a bubble and, you know, most of the people that I'm, I'm interested in talking to tend to, tend to be more, at least among the social media platforms, more around, around Twitter. So we'll see. Yeah, I mean, there's like a trivial reason why you might be right, which is there's, there's a chance that it actually gets banned for national security reasons. <laughs> but, well, you know, then, then we would be measuring, you know, like YouTube shorts or whatever, right? Or like Instagram reels, like pretty similar stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, the other thing, like, like Instagram stories, that's not that different than than TikTok. And I mean, it's people like it and people do it. And I put some stuff on my Instagram story too, but it doesn't seem like, uh, you know, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like the main reason people use Instagram or that they like it. And so... Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't have like a strong feeling that TikTok will, will like wither away or something, but I don't think it will, it will achieve much more prominence than it currently has. Yeah. I, I mean, here's the other, here's the other kind of challenge to it, right? Is that you, you can think of content as sort of evolving to become more like, more like pre-rational. Right. If you think of like MySpace as like the original social media, it's all based on like explicit networks and, you know, you choosing to follow whoever you follow and even like going to their page to read their stuff and like having to click on stuff regularly. You're very self-directed, 
right? And the evolution of social media has become just like, has just solidly pointed in the direction away from that. So the first kind of, uh, the first way is that like, you know, this is like Gerard, you follow what, who everyone else follows. You're not following your friends for content anymore. The main content comes from like influencers. And then the step above that is TikTok, where the influencers are not like influencers. The influencers are, are actually like more kind of organic to the platform in that way but they're like sourced up by the algorithm, right? So you're not even like choosing, you're not like hearing from your friend about like Kim Kardashian or whatever, right? You're, you're, you're getting it straight from the app itself. And then the, the, the layer above that, right? Is that the app itself is just generating all of the contents, hmm. right? It, it's just, it's just TikTok, but like fully AI generated, right? It's curtailed to uh, the individual user's desires. Um, I'm not sure how, what my timeline on that is. I quite frankly am not sure. Like, I'm not sure that TikTok is that far from the kind of uh, from the kind of efficient frontier. To be honest, it, it, when it comes to the sort of limbic hijacking, but you know, it could go either way. I could see it. You know, I could see that version becoming more popular. I could see it not. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, I, I've seen people become addicted to it. I mean, I, I, like I talked to my barber a couple of months ago and he said that he will open TikTok and it will, you know, it'll be daytime, like daylight outside. And then he'll look up again and it feels like no time at all has passed and it's dark. And, uh, and he says he's done that several times. So I think there are like people who just have that sort of, you know, addictive biology that interacts with this appealing, uh, platform and, you know, some some relatively small proportion of the population can get sucked into it. But I think most people, um, you know, maybe they'll some people will use it casually or something, but I don't think it will become this sort of all consuming thing. Um, it also doesn't seem to have the same like cultural cachet. I don't know if it's because of its associations with China or with uh, like sort of sort of superficiality or or what it is, but it doesn't seem to appeal as much to to elites or people, you know, cultural influencers. I know like TikTok has its influencers, but I don't think I've ever heard of like a real TikTok influencer um, who's sort of broken out the way that like. I don't know, like, like the, the original YouTube influencers in the early days of like, like PewDiePie and those kinds of people, um, who would be written about in, in mainstream outlets. Um, whereas TikTok, yeah, the, the, it doesn't seem to have like that sort of crossover appeal where it will like influence the, the, like the, the broader conversation and, and the minds of the educated public. Yeah. I, I mean, hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. Is this, organic or is this artificial right like to me like yeah it's, it's another question that i don't really know the answer to in terms of the, there, there's two ways to explain this one is that tiktok is just naturally less appealing uh and, and the other is that the legacy institutions have kind of circled the wagon, right? They saw what happened with Twitter and what happened with Facebook and they just want to, like the people involved just kind of like collective ag collectively agree that they want to prevent this uh, from happening in a top-down way. Hmm. Well, w wait, what do, you, what do you mean by that? They're circling the wagons in terms of like preventing TikTok from being hijacked from you know people they, they don't like or yeah, what do you mean by that? 
No, I, I just mean that they're like the stigmatizing, stigmatizing TikTok like proactively, right? Like the, the idea yeah. is that like tw- they didn't expect Twitter. Twitter took them by storm, and now they're all they're all addicted to Twitter, or at least they're downstream of people who are addicted to Twitter. Um, where, whereas the reaction to TikTok is more like you know they see TikTok coming now. TikTok is is increasing popularity, and they're putting out hit pieces. Whatever I have seen a few hit pieces on TikTok. Um, yeah, I've both seen those from too. a kind of conservative perspective and also i think like the national security perspective is kind of just correct right like like in terms of like the factual claim that like a lot of data is routed through china like that's demonstrated to be correct now but also from the kind of like social left perspective you know it is very much a kind of it is a kind of like status game i think you're probably more familiar uh with this or more knowledgeable about this than i am but yeah like do you have any? Do you have any? Takes what, on uh, what, what, was, TikTok, was TikTok banned by Trump? I vaguely recall something a couple of years ago uh, about him either attempting to ban it or he successfully banned it. But but then was it overturned or something? Do you remember anything about this? Right. Yeah. I think I think he was trying to ban it. Mm. This is a little bit hazy. I think he was trying to ban it or trying to get them to sell it to Microsoft, actually sell the US division to Microsoft. And that this ended up not happening. Okay, interesting. Uh, oh, well, I have so I just googled like, you know, did Trump ban TikTok? And there's an article from, yeah, from BBC. Uh, yeah, Trump era ban on TikTok dropped by Joe Biden. And then the next one is a link to Vox that says maybe Trump was right about TikTok. That was from, uh, oh, a month ago, December 13th, 2022. And that was in, you know, Vox of all places. So I guess it, yeah. Uh, so I mean, Trump was, was vocal about his, uh, uh, disdain for TikTok and yeah, because of, you know, ties with China. And so I, you know, I almost wonder if TikTok, like the, the sort of attitude around TikTok, like you're saying that the elites are circling the wagons. They don't like TikTok that much. I wonder if that sort of cooled off because Trump was for it, right? If Trump or, or Trump is for banning it, right? Mm, so you have to yeah. take the opposing position of Trump, right? He's your enemy. He says TikTok is bad. So you have to, you know, you, if you don't say it's good, you at least have to say, well, maybe it's not, you know, it, it, not, not, not as bad. You can't have the same attitude as, as Trump about it. So I wonder if, if he actually, um, you know, had, had a sort of the, the, the opposite effect of what he'd, he'd intended. Um, but, but yeah, I think there, there, yeah, there's probably a, like a status game going on there where, where people are trying to, to figure out the, the culturally correct, like prestigious stance to take on TikTok and Biden dropped the ban. And so I think a lot of cultural elites are just unsure, like if they're, you know, quote, allowed to, to, to bash TikTok because I've seen the hit, you know, the hit pieces. I saw one in the Washington Post a few months ago and it was, it was very tepid. I mean, it clearly took a, an oppositional stance to TikTok, but it didn't just come out and say it. It was like, oh, these influencers who don't have credentials are, you know, uh, um, providing misguided mental health advice to teenagers. And, but it wouldn't just like take a firm stance on it. It was just like, you know, indirectly through, through these sort of, um, yeah, the, the, these indirect arguments, um, uh, revealing their position. So, yeah, we'll we'll see. That was, uh, but I, but I, I think you're right that the national security issue is is serious, and it's almost surprising that that uh, yeah that it isn't taken taken more seriously. Yeah, I think this is actually maybe a bit related to something that I have on the have later on the on the roadmap, but I think we would cover it now. Is that I think there's a kind of 
there's a kind of like amnesia about like the idea of what a social problem is. Right? Have, have you seen like the Matthew Iglesias kind of like retweet of your article? Right? You have this article. I'll link it in the show notes. That was something like um, people are expecting men to do nothing, and they are responding by doing nothing. Uh, right? Have you seen the Matthew Iglesias criticism of this article? Oh, I haven't. No, I I, uh, I haven't seen it. What did he What did he say? Okay, so so he basically complains that there are no kind of like like Vox style policy solutions, right? He he was something like his his exact tweet was something like um, this is a lot of complaining and no pro- no policy solutions, right? Oh, and and he's had like similar critiques of like Yarvin, which is funny because I think like, Yarvin gives pretty explicit solutions, maybe not ones that Iglesias would ag- agree with. But right. I think in general, there's like a bounding of like what politics is about to basically, you know, like technocratic bills that can be passed and not really to basically like fundamentally social problems, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I get, yeah. I mean, well, I, I think that they're like part of part of the problem, like I think broadly on the, on the right, whether you identify as like a conservative or right wing or libertarian, it's just like a general like skepticism that, you know, like, like, uh, large scale, like, like large scale policy solutions are, are possible to, to solve problems, right? Like part of, part of like the whole idea of, I, I think broadly on the right is that, you know, a lot of, a lot of social, problems and a lot of social solutions are, are kind of bottom up problems, cultural problems, interpersonal problems. And you can't just sign a bill or, or give people money and hope that, you know, hope, hope that this will, will change things. I mean, I know that there are some, some interesting thinkers on the right who, you know, like, like, like uh, Charles Murray has suggested a UBI, right? Like sort of dismantling all sort of state benefits, welfare and everything, and just replacing everything with a uh, you know, some kind of a UBI and that this would revive uh, community and and people would start to hold each other more responsible. The idea being something like, you know, if, if you see a guy who's unemployed and isn't doing anything and you feel bad for him and you just sort of, you know, hold him to relatively low standards. But if you if you know for a fact that he's getting, you know, a fifteen hundred dollar check in the bank every month and he's just sort of lounging and 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 uh, complaining and not doing anything, then you can, you know, you, you, you have the knowledge that he has this money and that he could be, you know, at a minimum, you know, uh, uh, sustaining himself and, and maybe contributing some of it. Or if he, um, gets a woman pregnant, he can't use the excuse that he doesn't have any money to help her. Uh, and so this would also sort of what, like potentially, uh, like, retain his bond to her in some way because he has this this money and so does she and you know i, I think like the, those are you know interesting but but i i just like i'm generally skeptical of like economic solutions to to what's been happening um and that uh yeah yeah in, in, in a way I, I almost sometimes take the the opposite stance of this especially when i, I when i visit developing countries in which there's like you know large-scale actual poverty and i see that social capital is relatively high um, and I don't know, like, you know, what, what would be the policy solution to, to like match the social capital of, of Malaysia or something? Uh, like, like you'd actually right, have to make right. people poorer <laughs> to, to make that happen. <laughs> and I don't think anyone's up for that. And I'm not up for that either. So I don't really know, like, what the solution would be other than, um, you know, I, you know, I, my bias is towards social psychology and towards, you know, uh, status and influence and persuasion, prestige, all of those things. And, 
you know, every society has a group of people that wield a ton of sociocultural influence and they, to some degree, get to set the terms of like what uh, behaviors are respectable and confer status and honor and prestige. And uh, so, you know, one, one, not necessarily policy solution, but just a general uh, uh, um, uh, avenue towards promoting the things that I'd like to see, like increasing social capital and, and uh, sort of helping to rebuild families is for the, the cultural elite to, to start saying that this is actually a good thing to get married and to, to take care of your families and to not be a deadbeat dad and so on and so forth, which is a lot of the things that I complain about in that article. Um, and I do, I think, hold the, if I'm, if I'm, yeah, if I remember that article correctly, I do hold the, um, the elite to account what I call the luxury belief class to account for, uh, for sort of tearing down cultural guardrails. And, uh, meanwhile, they're benefiting from those very guardrails themselves, but they, they sort of, uh, undermine them for everyone else. Yeah. I think the problem here is that, you know, like there, there's a kind of like spirit of democracy, Right, where, you know, a lot of America is basically about, you know, there being people being able, this idea that, like, the government or, like, the society as a whole is going to reflect the will of the public. And here it's just clearly false, right? Like, it it very much just does not reflect the opinion of the average person uh, in terms of these kind of elite cultural institutions. And it's pretty hard to change that, in the from the kind of Matthew Iglesias policy mindset, right? Like you have the First Amendment, you can't really, you know, you can't really say like stop, you know, producing these uh, these kind of cultural products that denigrate, you know, all of these pro-social behaviors. Um, I guess you can you can su- you can subsidize um, you can subsidize the production of kind of like pro-social um, media. Right. But, but that, you know, like you, you run into the problem that, you know, those subsidies aren't necessarily distributed. Well, the people who receive them are not necessarily going to be competent. Right. So I don't know, like, are there any kind of basically um, bottom up solutions to um, essentially elite problems or does it have to come from the elite? Uh, I, well, I don't know what, what bottom up solutions would be sort of practical uh, or implementable in, re- in reality. I mean, I think, you know, the the people who sort of shape the culture as a whole and who are, you know, with the most most influence, they, like, yeah, they, they, I think they have a, a responsibility to, to everyone else. Uh, you know, this sort of, um, what, noblesse oblige to what like preach what they practice and to promote healthy pro-social beneficial right, norms. We're not, we're not talking about should we're talking about like can right we're talking about like the world that is oh they can though that's it's such an easy thing to me like this is like such low-hanging fruit that uh you know you can you you can talk more about these things and it wouldn't be that hard i mean if you just like i don't i don't know just like took a took a took someone uh at random uh, you know, some, some, uh, member of the, the chattering class and just, um, you know, whatever, like, like every week, just grab one of them and said, what do you actually do every day to like be successful? And, uh, and like, how are you raising your kids and how were you raised? And just like published that in some prominent outlet every day that, that everyone else, you know, reads like that would, I think, have a, have a profound effect too. 
um, rather than like how you think the world should be or how you would want it to be or how, you know, the, the position you're taking to be interesting or provocative or uh, to, to get clicks or something. Um, yeah, to, to actually talk about sort of like practical everyday things that you do. I mean, it's, it's just that's so that's so easy to implement in reality. Um, and yeah, it's I don't think it's like enough enough attention is paid to it. Right. That's actually really interesting. Um, because you can see this, you can see some version of this in like self-help books, right? Like, isn't there literally a self-help book that's like a hundred things that successful people do or something, or like a hundred habits of successful people or something like that? Oh yeah, right? probably. Like, this is a pretty common self-help yeah. trope. Yeah. Right. But a lot of that but, stuff is like, it's denigrated, right? Like self-help is considered mm, to be hokey it? or I, I think so. I think that's like the, I, 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 yeah, I think in the, in the sort of the educated, I guess some people like self-help, but my impression is that like it has this sort of hokey reputation or, um, you know, others filled with platitudes and, uh, and the, the sort of the, the, uh, like correct, you know, informed opinion to have is that, you know, actually, if you're not, you know, if you're living in, in poverty, or your life isn't going so well, if you're a member of some, you know, dispossessed or marginalized community, there's, you know, as an individual, you can't do anything. It's, you know, these sort of broader structural forces. And, you know, the, like, the, those aren't, you know, those aren't in self-help books. Self-help books are about like what you can personally do. I'm not opposed to like, I like self-help books. I think they're fine. But, you know, the, the sort of the, the, the culturally informed, educated position is, you know, uh, these, these sort of like broad scale trends and which I think are useful to, to focus on too, especially if like, that's what you do for a living, you do in data analysis and good to inform policy, but for actual people like living, breathing human beings, like knowing statistics, isn't going to like do anything for them. And in fact, I think in some ways it can, it can even be uh, debilitating. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is actually something that I've been thinking about a lot recently, like the kind of rationalist movement, like EA, effective altruism movement, the, the way that it's sort of kind of like explicitly oligarchical or, or I don't know, from, from their own perspective, it would be like explicitly like aristocratic, right? Like these things actually mean something. It's not like we're just arbitrarily creating an oligarchy. We, these principles actually help you to make better judgment, but they're basically principles that, that require you to have like a fairly high IQ, right? Um, and, and it does make it kind of like intentionally inaccessible, which I agree. Yeah. Yeah. You have to look at this in a, like a balanced way, right? Like when it comes to like AI research, Right. I, I think, you know, th there's no kind of way of doing it where you're not, you're not basically setting a pretty hard cognitive bar. Um, but in terms of other things, like their approach to global poverty, curing malaria, I think like, like, it's not hard to understand why curing malaria is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Like there it's, it's not nearly as necessary. Um, Right. So this kind of trickling down of um, of elite beliefs or of elite status, how does that... Um, maybe this is a good way of, of approaching it, right? Do you know, do you know like the trend of like Dimes Square Catholicism? Uh, I'm not familiar. Okay. So basically there's like a bunch of Catholics, uh, Catholic converts, like, you know, the Red Scare podcast. Uh, yeah, I've, I've heard of it. I don't think I, I've listened to like maybe some clips, but yeah, not a not a, like a, a devout listener of it. 
Right. So, so they're basically, they're a bunch of sort of aesthetic, aesthetically right wing or like trad, but also very high status. Like I think the Red Scare podcast, one of the uh, one of the co-hosts is uh, is a famous actress. Um, so essentially, like you have these like high status people who are adopting maybe more traditionalist, um, kind of socially conservative, religious um, values. And you can see this as sort of like a cycle, right? The, the problem is, you know, I'm not sure if you agree with this model, but this is, I think, actually, I listened to you and Richard Hanania and Zach Goldberg discuss this, right? Is that uh, the majority has a belief or like the quote unquote lower class has a belief. And then the, the upper class wants to distance themselves away from that. They adopt sort of luxury beliefs or just in general beliefs that are different from mm-hmm. uh, the majority, but those beliefs then trickle down to the majority and actually influence them, right? But if, if that trickles down to the majority, right, and that becomes popular, that becomes kind of like, you know, the new, it becomes passe, right? Like, does the does the elite go back to sort of embracing, like, pro-social or even just kind of, like, explicitly uh, conservative uh, values, well, uh, I think like in private, in private they do, right? Like in private they they, they generally right. do, but but publicly they like it's interesting, right? Like uh, I don't I don't know, like uh, I guess I haven't fully worked out the the like how those like status symbols, uh, like how much they're linked to behavior versus like professed opinions, because yeah, a lot of elites will will promote like you know like sexual promiscuity, for example. Uh, meanwhile, like may- maybe they, you know, they engage in some of that in college or in grad school or something, but generally like they're the most likely to, to sort of settle down and get married and have kids. And, um, uh, but, but they'll sort of retain this opinion that, uh, that generally speaking, right. Like promiscuity and, and, and sexual freedom is really good. Uh, and, and that is like, it is rampant among, among less educated people, among like the non-college educated, uh, there was a study I tweeted about it uh, a couple of months ago about how, you know, like the, the age group of like 18 to 22 or, you know, like late teens, early 20s, the the group that isn't in college are are much more sexually promiscuous than the group that is um, in college. And so, you know, people have this view that like, oh, you know, college students, it's this time of like experimentation and and it's just like, you know, this sort of wild sexual party. But actually, like the people outside of the colleges are like even more so. Um uh, engaged in, in, in casual sex and, and, and so on. So, um, right. But is that yeah, so because of culture or because of selection effects, right? Like are the yeah. college students just more well, conscientious? So, so yeah, both. Right. So, I mean, there, there are like, yeah, of course there are like individual differences, but the individual differences will be most likely to express themselves in a, a, a culture in which like norms are completely permissive and relaxed. Uh, and in a culture in which like norms are strictly enforced and, you know, people are, are held to certain behavioral standards that actually, um, compresses individual differences. So like, for example, in, you know, uh, 60 plus years ago in the U S like almost everyone was, was married by age 28, right? Like there were no like individual difference variables that were accounting for like why some people were married and based on class or, or education and so forth. Uh, because there was just this like extremely, you know, like in, in social psychology, these are called like strong situations 
such that the the sort of the pressure of the situation is so overwhelming that your personality variables like don't don't contribute to to any of your any any of the outcomes. So once that norm was undermined, uh, yeah, people could then express their underlying behavioral traits and dispositions and preferences. Um, and so, so I think like, yeah, there's, there's some selection effect going on now, but I think also just like in these, in these communities, like marriages, marriage is prized in like low, low class, low income communities. Like it is seen as like a, a, a prestigious mm-hmm. thing, but it's seen as kind of like out of reach or like the people around them don't seem particularly marriageable, especially the men. Uh, <laughs> and this isn't for, uh, economic reasons. Like that's a very small part of it, huh. right? But but a lot of it is sort of cultural, where men are just behaving like really badly because like no no one's no one's expecting anything of them, as as the the title of of my Substack article says. Um, you know, there's there's uh, like like broadly speaking, the the culture sort of has relaxed their attitudes and expectations towards towards young men, and there's no um, stigma or penalty really for being like a deadbeat dad, right? Like today, you're more likely to be stigmatized for smoking cigarettes than you are for abandoning your kids. I use this example in one of my Substack articles once about how, you know, like, like I remember going to, yeah, I went to this doctor, uh, like a year, year and a half ago. And one of the questions he asked me is if I smoked and I said, no, but I found it interesting that that was the one question he asked me regarding like my personal habits. He didn't ask me like my diet, what I ate, how often I exercised, anything like that. It was like, are you a smoker? Um, or do you use tobacco? But, uh, you know, if, uh, like if, if a guy came in there, like, uh, and, um, and was having some other, you know, some, some kind of medical issue or something, they, you know, they wouldn't ask him about like his family situation or anything like that. Right. Like the, like a doctor, like this sort of emissary, this high status emissary of society will sort of shame you for, for smoking, but he won't shame you or remind you or give you, you know, give like it's under the guise of giving you information about how smoking's bad as if people don't already know that it's bad for you. But the the purpose of that is to basically shame you, right? Into not doing it. To, there's this bad behavior, you should stop doing it. Uh, but he, you know, no one else does that for, 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 um, you know, absentee parents or for, um, you know, uh, uh, being a, being like a, a hostile or abusive uh, partner or, just being unemployed or spending your time, you know, playing, playing games or, or um, yeah, not, not working, like not doing anything productive or helpful for, for your local community. Right. I mean, in the case of, in the case of a doctor, right, like smoking is correlated with all sorts of kind of, you know, like medical conditions. But yeah, I think like in the broader, in the broader case, I think I agree with you. Actually, there's an, you made an earlier point, which I think is really important. You know, like one of the things I I do on this podcast is, is to be kind of critical uh, of libertarians from a kind of like psychological perspective, you know, like it is, it is kind of the case that in, in, in many cases, right, kind of increased libertarianism or even just like increased liberty, right? We can frame it in their terms and it's still correct, right? Like increased liberty just leads people to, to make poor decisions, right? Like increased liberty to basically have, you know, have promiscuity just leads people not to have family formation, not to engage in all these behaviors that might actually improve themselves, right? Like Russ Roberts has this book, um, Wild Problems, where he talks about, his experience of how marriage really changed his um, utility function and what he actually like prioritizes in the world. Right. And that led to him becoming like a generally more happy person. Right. Yeah. I think that a lot of 
cases, I don't know. There, yeah. there is a kind of ethical question here. This is actually something that I think about think about a lot, right? Where these sort of strong inherited norms are are, are definitely constraining, mm-hmm. but they are, you know, like here's the tension, right? Like th- there is there is like two kind of moral standards here one is like one is like the libertarian moral standard of like oh if there are some people who can handle like most commonly this is seen with drugs right if there are some people who can use it responsibly and some people who can't why are you kind of limiting the person who can use it responsibly while um while just because like some other people might not right and so so that's like one standard of it and the other standard is like you know, on a population level, there are predictable results from this kind of deregulation. There are predictable results from this kind of loosening of either explicit legal standards or kind of implicit social standards that ends up being destructive to a lot of communities. Right? Yeah, I, I just don't generally, yeah, I, I'm not really, like, I, I understand libertarianism, and I think a lot of smart, young uh, young males in particular go through a libertarian phase. There was, there was this, like, uh, there was this article that, that Peter Thiel wrote, like, I don't remember when this was, like 2009 or something, where he made this offhand remark about how libertarians are, like, almost exclusively male. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But, uh, yeah, a lot of people, uh, apparently were, were upset about that, that, uh, that, uh, that he observed there was this gender divide in terms of who's, who, uh, who finds libertarianism more appealing. And I get that, like, like, uh, you know, there's like this interesting work from, from Jonathan Haidt's moral foundations theory model about how libertarians, like their morality is, is almost exclusively centered on maximizing individual freedom. Um, right. And like that, that like makes sense to me. And it, and it makes sense why that would be appealing to a lot of, a lot of people, especially a lot of like healthy young men, right? Because like they don't have to, re- like they're the, they're the people who are like the least reliant on anyone else. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Whereas, like, you know, if, if you're like an, you know, I, I remember talking to this kid, this is, you know, just an anecdote from a few years ago. I remember talking to this, uh, this, this, uh, fellow student at, at Yale. He was maybe 18 or 19 years old and he was telling me how he's a libertarian and how, you know, like there shouldn't be any government regulation whatsoever and how, like, you know, even if, even if like some plumber screws over some little old lady and, uh, and, you know, there's no government interference and he decides to exploit her and take all of her money and, and, you know, steal all of her plumbing fixtures, like, you know, okay, that's on her, you know, that's her problem to deal with, but the government shouldn't get involved there. And uh, I thought to myself, like, that's, uh, I mean, that's a pretty extreme, uh, I mean, it's, it's, he, he was committed to, you know, some version of libertarianism, I suppose, but most people would not, uh, you know, would not tolerate yeah, that, that. That's almost like full on anarchism. Right? Yeah. I'm, I'm sure there's some kind of like, maybe he favors like police or something. But uh, like, yeah, I, I don't know. Well, yeah. So, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 like the way that I think about it and I know there's like different strands of libertarianism, but it's like generally the, the position is something like socially liberal and fiscally conservative. And I don't think that's like a seriously tenable position because if you're socially liberal in that, like, you know, extremely permissive norms, maximizing individual freedom, people can do drugs, people can behave in just about whatever way they want. You're going to increase like the numbers of people who fall into addiction. You're going to increase, you know, out of wedlock births, uh, single mothers, uh, 
and and then all of the associated social ills there of like increase in criminality of of people who are raised in in like stressful situations who then go on to cause problems for other people um and you know go go on to be drug addicts or criminals or whatever because of their experiences in in those families and so um and i know people will like invoke uh uh uh, uh behavioral genetics here but again like if you have a very strong environment with strong norms, you can actually like constrain a lot of those underlying dispositions, but in a, a completely free kind of libertarian environment, uh, yeah, you will sort of like those things will, will be like much more likely to manifest. Things will be like heritable traits will be more likely to express themselves. And so then you will have to pay for, for the, the fallout if you want to live in a functional society, right? Like if you have drug addicts and criminals and so on, um, and, and deadbeat dads and absentee parents, and you're going to have an increase in like orphanages and foster care. Someone has to pay that bill. So you can't be socially liberal and then fiscally conservative where people behave very, very badly and cause problems. And then, you know, it's like someone has to pay for the ensuing fallout. Uh, and so I think the, the position here would be like, you can, you can be socially liberal, but then you're going to have to be fiscally liberal too. Like you can say people can do what they want and, um, maximize individual liberties, but then, you know, you also have to accept like, okay, you have to be fiscally liberal and, and pay for, for the, the, the side effects and the consequences of that. And, you know, if you're, if you're fiscally, um, conservative, then you have to be socially conservative too. And that if you decide you don't want to pay much or contribute much to, uh, to, to, uh, provide social benefits and so on, you're going to have to, um, uphold like very strict behavioral norms and standards so that people behave and act right so that you don't have to pay for their mistakes. So you can either pay the social tax of upholding strong social norms, or you can pay the economic tax of what happens if you don't uphold them. But you can't like say people can do what they want and then refuse to pay for anything. If you want to live in a functional society, if you don't, like, if you don't want to live in a functional society and let people do what they want and then not pay, you can see what happens. But I just don't think that like the, the fiscally uh, conservative, socially liberal stances is, is like tenable, at least in the in the modern uh, in the modern context. I think uh, it, you know centuries past, may, maybe it was um, in some sense, but but definitely not now. Yeah, I think that that's definitely true in a democracy, right? Like in the end, if if, if people are feeling that kind of decline, if people are feeling that kind of uh, loss and and grievance, then there's going to be some kind of democratic, um, there's some kind of going to be some kind of like redistributionist policy, whether it's, you know, like Trump populism or, or like Bernie Sanders, right? Um, maybe in Singapore, right? Like uh, maybe in Singapore, a kind of like socially liberal, fiscally conservative policy is more possible. Um, but even then they're not, you know, they're socially liberal in in one way, in kind of, you know, like, they're pretty agnostic or they're pretty kind of like vaguely permissive in terms of, I think, like the things that we would consider as, you know, like Western, you know, quote unquote, culture wars, especially compared to nearby countries. But they're also, you know, they're very strict in terms of crime. So, so they're not like... I don't know. I don't know if you would consider that as part of socially liberal, but even then there's sort of like some kind of strictness that has to be. Uh, I mean, kind of, I guess like the attitude in Singapore. I mean, like I remember when I flew in there, 
a few months ago, they like the flight attendants announced that if you're carrying drugs, like you like you can um, you know be held accountable and what like the death penalty. Uh, Right. Yeah. Is, drugs as well. Drugs yeah, as well. and yeah. and so like and, and drugs are like you know for libertarians that's often like their number one you know like the memes about like weed man the <laughs> weed and so like yeah there's no drug use there's no homelessness I I asked uh, some Singaporeans what, what what would happen if like you know some vagrant was just like walking around uh, outside of a shopping mall you know like like the kind of person you see every day walking around San Francisco. And they said, like, the police would come and pick them up and, like, force them to go into a treatment center and, you know, get them a job, blah, 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 like, basically help them out in that way. And it's a nice thing. And I think a lot of Americans hear something like that and they're like, oh, that sounds so nice. But, like, in America, like, what if the person didn't want to go, right? Like, in Singapore, if the person doesn't want to go and the police force them, like, no one, no one's going to be, like, freak out. And there's not going to be, like, a ton of, like, media hit pieces on why the police are brutal, but in America, if like a couple of cops roll up on someone in San Francisco who's out of his mind and the intent is to take him to a treatment center and get him cleaned up and help him. And the guy says like, I don't know if you're not allowed to swear on this podcast, but, you know, he, he just like, yeah, screams, yeah, he screams obscenities at the cops and they, you know, like force him into the squad car. Like someone has their iPhone up and they're like, oh, look at these police like uh, harassing and abusing this poor homeless man who just wants to sit here on this park bench in peace, you know, like. It just like something like that is not viable in America, but in Singapore they have this sort of functional social compact where you can't be like a you know a, an extremely deviant kind of person, uh, and if you are, like they accept that uh, the state is allowed to use force to to help you, right? And and uh, in America, and especially in California, like it's just it's just impossible. So yeah, I mean it's uh, the. Like, yeah, I guess you can have, like, somewhat permissive attitudes, but you have to have, like, this underlying culture of, like, strict uh, expectations and and acceptance of, of, like, state power and all these other things. So it's it's not really, it's not really libertarian. Uh, Singapore is not really, not really libertarian. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so generally, that's, like, my, my critique of, of libertarianism in a, in a nutshell. Uh, which again is not to say that like you can't be socially liberal, you can't be fiscally conservative, but you also have to like you know accept that there are trade offs. You can't uh, you can't be both at the same time. Right. Yeah. I think. Hmm. So, so something I'm very interested in. You 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 mentioned earlier actually. You mentioned noblesse oblige. You mentioned this kind of sense of duty that elites should feel. And yeah, here's where I kind of maybe agree a little bit more with Matt Iglesias is that there's like, I don't know, on one hand, there's the kind of like moral sense of like who is responsible. And I think like there's a bit of a problem here if he says, you know, like if you can't come up with a policy solution, you know, you're responsible for for this, right? I don't think that's the case, but there is a kind of like practical sense in which like, you know, in the world today, the elites are behaving in this way. We kind of want to get to a world where elites are behaving in a way where they do have a lot of noblesse oblige. And it is kind of helpful to have a plan of like, how do we actually get there? Right. So, so do, you, do you have, how do you inculcate a sense of noblesse oblige? Where does that come from? Um, is is it possible to to have a sense of noblesse oblige in America? Uh, I on, think on kind of like widespread level. Probably there used to be. Um, now I I'm not so sure. 
I think like, you know, America is an interesting place because, well, I don't know if it's, if it's unique in this sense, but at least my, yeah, my perception of it is that part of, like part of the status game in America is like distinguishing yourself. Like, I don't know if this is, if this is always the case everywhere or if it can, if, it, if it's only the case for a certain kind, like somehow, somehow, um, you know, this is like my luxury beliefs idea, right? Where, where status became associated with your beliefs and opinions and, and policy preferences and so on as a way to distinguish yourself. Whereas like historically, the way that elites distinguish themselves was through their, um, like, like material goods through their, uh, you know, ex- exhibition of the, the clothes that they could wear and afford and, you know, other, other kinds of like refined tastes and habits too. Uh, you know, like preferences in wine and art and, and culture. And now it's, um, you know, like much more sort of overtly like sociopolitical things that directly influence society. So, you know, I, I like, I'd rather have the elites sort of compete for status based on like how big their yachts are rather than like, you know, being the voluntary thought police and like controlling, you know, like what, what, what like people are allowed to, to say and to think and so on and under, under the threat of like, you know, terminating employment or whatever. So is, is um, that true though? Like, is, isn't it, for, for, even from your kind of standpoint, right, wouldn't it be better if they were policing what people could say, but in a kind of like pro-social direction? Uh, isn't that like a necessary part of like being like, you no know, boss of the I, I don't, I don't know about controlling, you know, I wouldn't like, like uh, under threat of being fired or something. No, but I think like strongly influencing maybe, or like, you know, clearly um, conferring status on certain practices and beliefs and opinions uh, rather than others. Um, but, but yeah, so, uh, yeah, th- that there are, there are other ways to, to do this other than like, there are other ways to signal status basically besides luxury beliefs. And, you know, one, you know, one hope that I have about like critiquing it and, and outlining this idea. And I have some other things coming up that, I, that I'd like to explore, you know, using this lens is to like help to, you know, hold a mirror up to this group of people and show them that like, this is a, this is like a terrible way to show how different you are than everyone else, how sophisticated and interesting you are. There are, yeah, maybe there are other ways to do this, but this isn't the way to do it. I think like status is, you know, that's, it's everywhere. It's something that people will always care about, but there are different ways that it can express itself. And so, you know, like I've, I've written about this, about how like, you know, the, the elites in Europe, you know, they, they would play these games with like, you know, access to spice or through, um, you know, like, uh, their titles of, of nobility and so on. Like, you know, those are, those are all, you know, it's, it's kind of frivolous and it's kind of silly. And I think that a lot of people who have luxury beliefs think that like their version of, of status, if they think about it at all, is like much more sort of, um, uh, it's, it's more elevated than, uh, you know, how, how big their yachts are or something, but, but, uh, there's sort of inadvertently, uh, hurting other people. So yeah, if there's a way to, uh, to reattach uh, status to to other things, that would be you know, that would be ideal, right? To me, I think a lot of it is this kind of like egalitarianism of, uh, and here I don't mean egalitarianism. I should actually clarify this because I don't think I should also clarify this in writing because there are some people who don't listen to the podcast, but like the, the kind of egalitarianism of. Uh, biology or like the kind of like blank slateism, right? That happens sort of makes this, although actually not, not really just of biology, but also of kind of like social rank, even though it's like not true, 
Right, yeah. This is kind of like something really weird and hard to put your thumb on because I think like the propaganda around it is is like it, it suggests this and then it denies that they're doing it, right? Where there, there's like a claim that basically so, so like one layer of it is layer one of it is basically suggesting you know that everyone's equal that there's no such thing as social class and then number two is like signaling signaling actively in the way that you're talking about in these luxury beliefs where social class is conferred to people who um you know basically have social progressive ideology right and then and then third they deny they deny that like social progressivism is used as a status signal right so so that's like a three layer way of describing it and to me like there's a correlation here or not not even just a correlation there's a causation here where it's not like okay so, so like i don't think it's actually too hard to still differentiate yourself based on economics, right? Like, I, I think actually, yeah, there's a pretty simple way of phrasing this here where you're still differentiating. There's, like, a possibility where you still differentiate yourself on economics. It's just that it's, like, showing off your large house instead of showing off your suit, right? Like, houses are still expensive. Houses are, like, more expensive, right? So if you wanted to show off in that way, you could, so, so I'm, I'm less, this is kind of why I'm less skeptical of, um, of sort of economic explanations and more preferential to this kind of basically like competing hierarchies narrative, right? So, so the competing hierarchies narrative is something more like this. Um, there are a bunch of old, um, kind of old money, you know, elites writes uh you know the Salzburgers, New York Times, um uh university education, so on, right? And and then there's actually like a parallel elite, which was created by basically a combination of actual kind of economically egalitarian policies, uh immigration and free markets, which is basically, you know, which it, which is kind of like summarized, simplified into this like Silicon Valley elites, you know, like founders, um, that that kind of thing, venture capitalists, right? But really consists of a lot of people, and I would consist like you know a small business owner as that, right? Like kind of merchant rights, the um, the the small the guy who owns like a like a you know small million dollar car dealership right you know like five or ten million dollars is not like a silicon valley founder but is still like quite well off right um so there's kind of like two parallel things that are happening here and because america has actually like it's kind of like suffering from its own success where it's created this ability for actual self-made elites Right, that's the actual reason why there's like differentiation into this other kind of way of conferring elite status. So, so what do you think of that? Do you, do you think of that as kind of like it maybe a different model? Uh, yeah. I mean, I've, I, I don't think I disagree. I guess like so under that framework, then so so just so I have it clear, you have the sort of the old money like blue blood wasps, 
uh, and you know, some like they're, they're still around in some form, perhaps you know, to some degree they've 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 faded, but they're you know they're still uh, you know a, a relatively strong force in in the in the U.S. And then there's the like the provincial economic elites who. Yeah, like like run car dealerships and small businesses, and who are sort of like yeah single digit millionaires, who yeah probably wield a lot of a lot of local influence in their communities, uh, and then and 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 are those like the two kind of like sole groups like the sort of uh, like Brahmin left merchant right? Is that the idea? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. Okay. Yeah, I, I think we mostly agree. I think the implications where we might disagree is that at least from my interpretation, you viewed kind of luxury beliefs as a continuation of, uh, of uh, like, I think literally this, this is a quote uh, from one of your podcast appearances of like people used to wear like suits and top hats. Now they signal with their, um, with their status. Hmm. Right. And I actually don't think there's a continuation there. I think that, I think that as, kind of social status and ability to inf- influence the chattering class has has like decoupled from economic productivity that these things are now basically competing with each other oh i see uh n- no i i i don't think that's right um i mean in a way okay so I'm not saying that like the, the wasps and the blue bloods, like that same group of people suddenly shifted. I'm saying like the, 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 like the most influential and prominent and educated, you know, the, the upper class, the ruling class, um, you know, what I call, you know, at least a subsection of them, the luxury belief class, like there, it's, it's, it's not like the same. It's not like a, uh, like a direct lineage, a descendant of, of that, that group. It's just that, you know, we have a different kind of elite now, you know, made up in, in, in part by, um, you know, some, some descendants of the wasps and the blue bloods, but then also, yeah, the people who benefited from, uh, some of the things you were talking about, right? Like, like, uh, immigration, but then like standardized testing and just like the yeah. shift around, like, you know, you used to get into Harvard because of family and connections and pedigree. And now you get in through, you know, those things can help, but then also like, like standardized test scores and being able to sort of communicate, uh, and use the right buzzwords in your personal essay and to be able to have like a certain kind of polish, not the same polish as a hundred years ago, but you know, there's like a, a polish there and, a, and an ability to communicate in the language of, you know, like the language of, of, uh, political correctness. And so, um, yeah, like I, I think there, it's not a, it's not like a continuation based on like the same group of people, but rather like the elites changed. And, uh, you know, like the, some people call them like, you know, like the 9%, right? Like we used to talk about like the 10% <laughs> yeah. and now it's the, the top 9% or the top, um, I've seen it like, like the upper middle class, like as a, as a group, the upper middle class probably wields more influence than, uh, the top 1%. Uh, I mean, in, in part because they outnumber them, but then also because these are the people who, um, uh, yeah, tend to wield cultural influence, who show up to like, you know, PTA meetings and local politics and consume, uh, news media and, you know, put pressure on, on influential organizations. Um, 
So yeah, there was a there was an interesting uh, study. I've seen both Robin Hansen and Brian Kaplan uh, discuss it on their blogs. I don't remember the the author. It was also uh, uh, the the author of the piece wrote an interesting like sort of a summary of it in the Washington Post a few years ago, basically indicating that the people who have the most influence on social policy are the upper middle class. Like at, at that point, I think the study came out around 2014. But basically, uh, is this Jylan's? Maybe. Uh, but they like they you know basically like the, the the characteristics of this group right this upper middle class like they like the median income is something like you know two hundred and ten thousand dollars a year they have degrees from like a top thirty or top forty university and you know they have like sort of uh, uh, white collar occupations and you know all these other things but basically like that that stood out to me that actually like the the group that seems to have the most uh, influence on policy. More so than the middle class, and that was that was sort of the, the the headline finding is that like the middle class has less influence than the rich. But then when you look at who the rich were, the way that they were defining rich, it was like you know the top decile, uh, who yeah. I think like most people would call the 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 upper middle class. And two hundred and ten thousand dollars a year is a lot, but you know I don't think people think of that as like like rich, right? So. Um, and so this is the group, right? Like these are, this is the group. Like, uh, if you, you know, just pick out a random person in America who earns $200,000 a year, like, I, I think like, yes, they, 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 they demonstrate their status through their material goods to some degree. But I think like that person, you could, you could probably tell with a relatively high degree of accuracy, like what their, what their, uh, opinions on, on social and political issues are. Yeah, if, yeah. If they match those requirements, so, right, two hundred thousand, ten thousand dollars a year, and if they went to uh, a fancy university and um, work some kind of like, a, you know, if they work as a consultant or something, like you can tell with with uh, fairly strong accuracy, I think, knowing nothing else about them. Yeah, yeah. So I think I'm totally in agreement with you here. Where I mean, this is where I kind of deviate from sort of the you know like the IDW or kind of right-wing class analysis is that I don't really see, I don't know, maybe this is just a kind of like relative position thing, right? But I don't see a lot of the chattering class as, you know, very secure or stable as high class at all, right? And, and here here I'm presenting like a weaker version of the argument. Maybe like I'll, I should pre- prevent like, or by weaker, I mean, like less ambitious, but maybe I should present the more ambitious one and just, just uh, have the, have the conflict out. Right. Which is like, I think that actually, you know, the, the, like the actual upper class is sort of like Silicon Valley tech founder. Like the Elon Musk is like the actual upper class or like the actual elite. And then like the, the chattering class is sort of this like falling elite. Eric Weinstein invented this term like precariat, right? Like precarious, hmm. Uh, upper middle class, but like very precarious people of like Elizabeth Warren voters, basically, right? Like that's that's who he was using it to describe. But I think that's that's what this is, right? That, that like the social signaling is actually a sign that they're like they're, they're kind of like very insecure narcissists, right? It's this classic like uh, it's like this this classic contrast of being like personally, internally extremely insecure and perhaps also economically insecure. And simultaneously having to project, you know, outwards confidence and absolutist beliefs, where that insecurity is sort of derived from the fact that they're being outcompeted by all of these, you know, capitalists. 
Uh, I mean, I, I don't, yeah, I don't doubt there's some, some envy and some resentment going on there that they're not being paid as well as they would like or that they think they should. But I mean, at the same time, like these, the, they, they chose these positions, right? Like they understood that there was going to be a status income trade-off. So they chose high status, low income jobs in order Did to, they? Like, to what influence. do they, their SAT maths look like, right? Uh, well, who are we talking about? Like, if we're talking about people who... Yeah, like who, the New York Times writer. Oh, yeah, yeah. So there was a study a few years ago on, uh, like, the kinds of people who work at... So it was on the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and, yeah, there was, like, just, like, some, some shockingly high number, like, 50-ish percent. Roughly half of their staff went to elite schools and had top uh, standardized test scores and... Yeah, they're not dumb people. Like a lot of them are very like, yeah, they're smart people. But, um, you know, just because you're smart doesn't necessarily mean like you're immune to ideology or something like you can be like very high IQ and and say dumb things like IQ is like necessary, but not sufficient to have good ideas. Um, so so uh, yeah, so so anyway, like they yeah, they chose these these jobs and, and a lot of them too come from from money, right? Like, I mean, generally, if you go to an elite school, like like the pathway to to work for a prestigious media outlet, uh, you tend to have to go to like a, a, a an expensive elite school, and you know, on average, those people are like you know legacy admits or people whose f- family has you know some some amount of money, and so you know they're not um, like if, if you're talking about some someone who works for I don't know like a lower tier outlet that isn't as respected or something. But if we're talking about like prestige media, a lot of them, you know, they could have been something else other than what they chose. And they, I, I mean, I guess it depends. Like, you know, there's, there's different kinds of elites. There are different factions. Often they have competing interests. Um, but the, 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 yeah, the cultural elite. I vaguely recall reading. I think this might've been from Curtis Yarvin actually. And I'm still not sure if I 100% agree with it, but it seems like directionally accurate, which was that um, like Harvard has more influence on BlackRock than vice versa, right? Like the sort of the the elite academia has more prestige and more influence on like the realm of finance than the realm of finance does on, on elite academia. And so in that sense, like, you know, like the, the cultural elites, you know, they, they may not have as much money, but they do have this sort of social influence that can, you know, direct the conversation and um, if not change people's minds, at least um, decide what people are talking about. Right. Like, you know, maybe maybe the like the New York Times runs a headline. It's not going to or runs an article. It's not going to change uh, people's minds, but it will determine like what's on the agenda that we're, what are we going to talk about? What are we going to disagree about today? Right. So they have that kind <laughs> yeah, of power. Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, yeah, maybe things will change with Elon Musk buying Twitter and he's sort of stepping into, uh, this role that, that I guess, you know, that, that, um, may sort of shape some of the, the opinions and the, uh, what, like the sort of social currency of the cultural elite to some degree. But yeah, I, I, this is like a kind of a battle, right. Between the, the 1% and the 9% broadly, right. Like you have this sort of this economic elite, maybe like aligned with like finance and, and tech and like people who are like, you know, ultra wealthy. And then you have the 9% who, I mean, I don't know if the precariat is, I guess it depends, right? Like that's a, it's an interesting term. And I think it's accurate for a lot of people, but as far as like people who really get to decide like what the cultural conversation is about and, you know, what, what's going to get you uh, banned on social media or potentially fired from your job, like those people tend to work at like elite media uh, positions. 
that are actually hard to get. Yeah. Okay, so, so there's like two claims here. I don't know, like my interpretation of uh, elites being, or like media elites being just extremely bad at math mostly comes from tech coverage. Like a lot of coverage of um, of blockchain, of machine learning, certainly. Machine learning is the worst one. You know, like they'll just make completely, you know, enumerate claims. They'll, they'll like multiply the numbers for trading costs wrong. They won't understand, you know, like algorithmic time complexities. Um, a lot of it is just like tech, tech press being dumb. But I don't know, right? Like, how much of that is how much of that is like ignorance versus inability or like how much of that is like laziness versus inability right because theoretically right like they should have contacts to kind of explain this to them right like i don't know yeah maybe i should yeah we i'm not sure what we what we would talk about to try to resolve this difference first but i don't know like this has also been a kind of trope right of like the tech press being you know like too dumb to actually understand the technology that they're supposed to be reporting on and i've talked about you know like the arbitrage that's there about like how much would you have to pay someone to uh with with the technical competence to actually be a uh, be a tech reporter right you'd have to pay them you know maybe uh like tech level salaries and then that would not be very sustainable for the news outlet itself but yeah i'm open to having my mind changed on that um the the second problem i think or like the second thing not necessarily problem um that i think is pretty interesting is this yeah this yarvin idea of like which way which direction power flows right because i think you're completely right on that point that you know power flows from the new york times to you know, the Fortune 500, with maybe a few small exceptions like Elon, right? But I, I do agree that that's the direction of influence. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean... The interesting I, is yeah. that despite that, right, they're still, they're still, like, not paid that much. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think that, like, that is... Uh, there is, like, I, I would say there's more sort of what resentment flowing from the cultural elites to the economic elites than, than vice versa. Uh, although there's not zero in the other direction. Um, I mean, the, uh, like, I know that there's like a lot of mistakes in media, but I guess like, you know, you probably read Richard's recent piece, uh, about yeah. you know, why the media is honest and good. And, uh, and I, you know, I would like to just see like, you know, I, I, I I, I don't doubt that like with tech, anything with numbers, there's going to be a lot of, a lot of errors, but I guess like it would be compared to what, like, I would like to see, you know, the ratio of mistakes relative to accurate reporting and like what percent of the time they get this wrong. Um, because, you know, it's like, that's just like a, a very basic sort of, uh, cognitive quirk, right? Where we, where we you know, are very, very keen to, to, uh, track the, the, the flaws and errors of, of, uh, you know, people we're, we're not, uh, disposed to, to like, but then, or, yeah, but then, um, you know, overlook, overlook some of the good things that they do. And so, yeah, like, and, and then also like in tech compared to, to, to other fields too, are they like especially likely to, to report errors in, in, in their tech reporting, their tech coverage versus, um, you know, anything else. So, yeah, yeah. And, and then, um, 
yeah, and the other the other point. I mean, yeah, there's there's just yeah, there's a, a mismatch between you know, like if you work in in tech, especially more recently, right? Like, didn't the New York Times like announce like something about like how they're going to like shift their coverage of tech? Where did I read this? I read this somewhere that you know they they used to be like quite favorable, but then they they decided to like become more adversarial. Was like the the summary of what they're. Their, uh, their, their reporting. Wasn't this in like 2012 or 2013? Something like that. Yeah. And, uh, and that was an interesting one of, of like, you know, this, this, this culturally elite, uh, faction. Basically, I think like there was a, a fear that like the tech elites were getting too powerful and, you know, they, they were like, in, in a way, they're sort of similar. Yeah. And social media displacing them. Yeah. Right. Just displacing like not even economically, but just kind of like as their role. And like shaping the conversation, which is what cultural elites want to do. And yeah, there was this almost this kind of like Girardi and mimetic rivalry or something about like, you know, they, they hate the tech elites like more than the finance elites because like they're, they're actually more similar to them. And, and also just like personality wise, right? Like, like, uh, you know, writers and techies often tend to be like somewhat introverted, kind of like, you know, very interested in ideas and, um, and yeah, I guess like sort of what like nerds in school or something like that. And I think like that, you know, that that also sort of maybe inflamed some of the the animosity toward them. And they were making way more money, right? Like this, like roughly the same kind of personality type, but also just earning way more and getting to shape the conversation through social media and and being like you know cool cool geeks, cool nerds or something. That was kind of like you know like like writers aren't considered as 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 cool. So I think there was some of that. Academics aren't considered you know that cool either. So. Um. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is yeah, really yeah, interesting yeah, yeah. because I think this was one of my blind spots, right? I see a huge difference. You know, this is kind of like the word cell shape rotator thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I had Rune on the podcast before, but maybe that is like maybe that is kind of my own bias and like the bias of a lot of tech people of of maybe you know trying to pretend that there's more of a difference than there is. Right? Yeah. Well, I'm talking about well, that's pretty interesting. Right in. Yeah. I think that like, of course. You know, you know, we 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 like to what like there's this motivated dissimilarity, this idea in psychology about like how if you don't like a person or an outgroup or something, you you focus on all of these things that that uh, you know you pay more attention to the things that make you different versus the same. But um, mm, yeah. but I think from the outside, like people who aren't who don't have a foot in either camp, they kind of look at you know uh, like the typical person who works in tech versus the typical journalist uh, who works in elite media. And they're like, yeah, they're kind of like, you know, kind of, kind of similar. Um, so, so yeah, yeah. Any, any, anyway, yeah, I think that, um, yeah, when people, people talk about the elites and like this broad brush, like, you know, the elites, but, uh, that, 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 that term covers a lot of, um, you know, it, it covers a lot of, a lot of dif- differences between different, different elite factions and how much power they wield and, um, you know, what, what kind of power it is exactly like economic power versus cultural power. And yeah, I mean, it's interesting too, because like, even within these factions, I'm seeing like, uh, like these disagreements bubble up, you know? So like, if I, if I talk to some friends of mine on the left, they say like, you know, uh, like smart liberals spend too much time, uh, in Hollywood, right? Like, okay, they're making these movies and these TV shows, but they need to be focusing on the judiciary and they need to be focusing on, you know, government and, you know, the Republicans are, you know, staffing, you know, all all these Republican judges and so on. And and they're freaking out about that. And, 
then people on the right are saying like, you know, we're focusing too much on, on the political realm and we need to be focusing more on culture and we need to be making movies and TV shows and like sort of influencing the youth through, through pop culture in that way. And so both sides kind of think that the other side is like, you know, basically what like have, has some kind of like, um, some kind of advantage, you know, they're, they're, they're the ones who are in the right space, who are doing the right thing, who are sort of in, in increasing their, the, the power of their side. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I find that, that interesting too, that every, like both sides think they're lacking in some, some regard relative to the other side. And they think that what they're yeah. doing doesn't matter as much. Yeah. I want to put a pin on that because that's definitely interesting as well. Um, but, but I do want to actually drill down on this kind of like tech, uh, tech media personality differences versus similarities. I know a lot of my, you know, a lot of my audience will be um, very into this and maybe a bit more, you know, like definitely in favor of the tech side. But yeah, like, so, so what do you expand more on what you think? Or this might be easier. This might be easier. I'll do, I'll do the case that they're very different, right? You know, the most kind of like explicitly biased version of this argument is that like tech is foundationally based on truth and media is foundationally based on lies. Media is foundationally based on spinning things on sort of preserving status on making the connection, the nepotistic connections with the right people, right? Arthur Salzberger is sort of the best example of this literally an heir, right? Literally has his position because of his circumstance of birth, never, you know, built anything on his own and like completely, you know, curates the New York Times based on the status and the social um, beliefs of the day. And tech is much more based on basically, does your product actually work, right? You know, like, like it or not, right? Twitter is getting its its feature updates now, right? Facebook, even TikTok, right? They they do what it's, they, all of those apps do what they say on the tin, there's no kind of false promises involved. There's no sort of, you know, like oligarchy back deal negotiating here. It's just, you know, we give you the product. It does what it, it does what it does. And people seem to, you know, people seem to like the product, right? So, so that's like the big kind of difference between the two that I think like tech people would want to highlight. Um, so, and like in terms of personality differences, this is of course, you know, like quantitative versus qualitative, you know, like writers versus uh, engineers. Um, that's also, that that's also there as well. Right. So what would be your case, you know, like what would be the case that they're more similar than they are, than they are different? Uh, well, okay. So I guess I'm looking at this as someone who, like I mean, I, I'm in a I'm in a, an unusual position because I I didn't expect to to be in a position where I would, uh, you know, be reasonably considered to be like a member of of you know the what like the elite or this kind of you know culturally influential group, right? And so. I still in some regard view myself as an outsider. And so when I like, like, okay, I, I, like one way to think about this is that like, okay, so, so tech elites and media elites have more in common with each other than either one of them would have with the modal person in society, like their tastes, their habits, their worldview, 
the kinds of like things that they believe, the, 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 the restaurants they frequent, like everything about them, right? Like not, it's, that's, that's too strong to say everything about them, but, but much about them would be to, to a complete outsider who didn't go to college. Like they would be like indistinguishable from one another, right? Like, so, so, you know, to, to, to each other, it makes sense. And I get what you're saying, right? Like there's, you know, the, you know, what, like journalists have a verbal tilt and, and techies tend to be sort of more quantitatively oriented and, you know, probably, yeah, like techies can probably write better than journalists can do math. Actually, probably, they, they definitely can, but. Um, I'm, I'm skeptical yeah. of this. A lot of software engineers like barely speak English. Yeah. Okay. Well, sorry, go uh, well, <laughs> to, right. Like, cause I'm, I'm not in that world, but I read a lot of, a lot of like tech, tech, tech adjacent, um, um, people. And, and I guess like, you know, if, if, if you get to the point where people are reading your stuff, you, you have to be, you know, so, uh, a decent writer, but, um, yeah, that's basically like my, my main point here. I mean, it, it almost sounds like, like to me, if like you're, you're pitting, I don't know, like, uh, um, like truck drivers and mechanics, right? Like two di- completely different jobs. Uh, I, I think they both deal with automobiles, so maybe that that might be confusing for some people. But like, okay, what? Well, like, like truck drivers and plumbers, right? Two different jobs, working class jobs. But you know, if you're not a member of the working class, you would think like you know they're kind of similar to one another. Uh, despite their jobs being vastly different and the things that they do and maybe the the, the skills and talents that they tend to have. Um, but to a complete outsider, they would look like very similar in terms of like their habits and tastes and manners of speaking and worldview and all of those kinds of things. Right. So that's, that's basically what I'm getting at. Um, and yeah, I think so, you're right. Yeah, I think yeah, you're yeah. right. Like friends in common, all of those things. So, so that's basically it, right? Like they, again, like those two have more in common with one another than they would with like, you know, like a, like the median or modal person in society. So that's, that's basically it. And I think like, yeah, there's, there's much, they have much more in common, but the things that they disagree on, they tend to disagree pretty, pretty vehemently. And it seems relatively recent too. I think like 15 years ago, the differences wouldn't have been so pronounced. Uh, And, you know, this was like before, like before journalism declared war on tech, I think uh, like, you know, it it would have been more widely accepted that they had more, uh, more in common than 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 they than not. Yeah, this is the absolutely wonderful Mary Harrington quote of it's not shape rotators versus word cells, it's the both of them versus IRL stuff rotators. Oh, yeah, yeah, actually yeah, like that's like the laptop <laughs> class versus the yeah, you know, yeah. or the what is it like the the world of like the world of bits versus the world of atoms or something like that, which I think is like that's probably true. Like how much of your time do you spend on your laptop? versus not and that would be like a, a strong you know like like uh the, the people who spend time on their laptops have like much more in common with one another despite you know often hating each other uh than than the people who who aren't on their laptops yeah but but then there's like uh a book like zen and the art of motorcycle repair that makes the opposite case right that there's actually a lot of similarity between you know like theoretical math and and working with your hands um, although I think, yeah, in, in practice, that doesn't really manifest itself, right? Like maybe, maybe like in theory, you know, like this is, this is a theme of, I think like Ayn Rand's writing as well, right? That there's a lot of similarity between the two, right? Um, but also, yeah, how much of that is in practice? Yeah, very little. I would agree with that. Um, 
Hmm. Yeah. This is like this the, is really the small differences. Yeah. No, no, but like that's that's not that's that's not the extent of it, right? Like it's not even like the narcissism of small differences makes the argument that actually both of those are much more similar to each other than similar to basically working with your hands or basically like a middle class job, but I'm not sure that that's actually true on a kind of technical level. Right. That that's what you have. Have you ever read the uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Repair? I've not. I've not read it. But I've, I've yeah. Like yeah. I've heard. Yeah. At some point, I do need to read it. I've heard so many people talk about it. So. Yeah, I mean, like that. That's the kind of case, right? There, there's like a, a similar book called like Godel Escher Bach that makes the same point, but with like musicians, right? That like Bach is very similar to you know basically the work that you're doing with uh, with like math research, right? Um, yeah, but is that, is that sort of, you know, cope, is that sort of post hoc justification when I think in practice, you know, it's definitely true that the median software engineer and the median, you know, journalist is much more similar in kind of preferences and lifestyle than the kind of, you know, average middle-class person. Yeah. I think that like that, that observation just as like a statistical observation is definitely true. But that is an interesting contradiction, right? That That is an interesting con- contradiction that basically, you know, lifestyle and social circle override, like, the style of work that's actually being done, right? I, I think that's... May, maybe that's not that interesting to, like, people historically, right? Maybe people historically would be like, yeah, of course your social, social circle is more important than the job that you do. Um yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I get what you're yeah. saying. Like, like in terms of your aptitude and your inclination, one job is more uh, like mathematically demanding uh, than the other. But yeah, like that's that's like a like a like less important, I think, or like not not as apparent anyway. When when you're sort of comparing people uh, as far as like you know how similar versus how different they are, and um, and yeah, I mean, you know, right, like right. my, my, uh, interpretation of like, I mean, this is, this is a unique case, like the tech versus, versus media case, because like the media explicitly decided to have this conflict. But, but generally speaking, like, you know, not, not even taking that example, but generally speaking, like a lot of, a lot of animosity and hostility, uh, tends to be like most pronounced between like similar individuals. Um, so, you know, like, like a lot of, a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with like mimetic rivalry with Gerard and like, you know, people who want the same things tend to be, you know, like the most, most, uh, most prone to conflict. But then even in, in, um, psychology research on envy and, and schadenfreude, uh, we tend to, you know, experience the most, uh, envy towards people who are similar to ourselves. I mean, you know, very simple studies show that like, you know, men are most likely to, uh, feel envy towards other men relative to women uh and 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 same for women too like you know we're, we're more envious of people of the same sex versus the opposite sex and experience more glee at the misfortune of people who are similar to ourselves uh versus different if we view them as some kind of social competitor and we're, we we tend to view you know people as our competitor if they are similar to uh, ourselves or remind us of ourselves in, in in some way so i think like that doesn't necessarily explain the the media uh and and tech case but I think that, um, you know, it, it's a useful, it's a useful lens to like view interpersonal conflict generally. 
Yeah, I do think. Hmm, yeah, yeah. This I think makes more sense when I'm talking to populists. Yeah, I, I think like that. Definitely, there needs. Yeah, I, if anything, it's like tech does not differentiate itself enough. You know, like part of this is like adopting maybe more adopting more kind of like trad aesthetics or like not just aesthetics, but you know, like actually doing it right. Like actually being more, you know, I don't know if this is like social, not necessarily social conservative in like this, the culture war sense, but in, you know, like basically, you know, dating for marriage being much more, you know, like quite frankly, um, applying more judgment to yeah the to the people you're dating to these kind of like drugs for sure yeah like could adopting would adopting that kind of behavior first of all i think that would just be like a good thing right this is just my kind of priors is that that would just be good for you know your lifestyle and your way of life generally but also i think that would yeah there there needs to be a lot more on the tech side of cementing that kind of alliance with the broader middle class and the broader, you know, public. I think definitely, yeah, you're right. There's this kind of asymmetry here where definitely in tech circles, they feel really allied with, you know, kind of like the populace, the broader public, because, you know, they're both kind of anti-woke, right? Yeah. But that's not necessarily how the middle class or the working class feels. Yeah. I, I think that that's definitely a blind spot. That's very important. Yeah. It's an interesting, like, there's a sort of a reshuffling going on politically where, I mean, famously, like Elon Musk, I mean, if you watch, um, yeah. you know, like, like Tucker or, or Hannity, uh, their monologues, whenever Elon Musk comes up, like, they speak favorably about him. And so, you know, that suggests to me that, like, the, the, the sort of, typical Fox News viewer is actually like pro tech in some ways, uh, or at least like pro Elon. And he is sort of a stand in right now, I think, for tech more generally. Uh, a lot of the media hate uh, Zuckerberg, right? Because Facebook right. is the most popular website, it's like social media platform used by conservatives, in part because like, you know, that's where the boomers went uh, to, to consume <laughs> their content. And they're more likely to be um, Republicans than than young people who use other platforms. And so, yeah, there's a lot of um, hate directed at Zuckerberg and a lot of praise directed at Musk from the other side. And so, yeah, there's a, there's an interesting reshuffling, I think, going on in tech um, right now with, um, with uh, you know, like, like the, the realignments uh, occurring. And, yeah, like Peter Thiel, who, who backed Trump and is, like, you know, vaguely affiliated with the right. So, yeah, I think um, this is probably good. <laughs> Because uh, if if literally every single elite institution is with one side, then eventually, you know, you will have a one party state just because the elite have that power and can, you know, sort of slowly move in that direction if they want. Uh, and so, yeah, to, to actually have like elite factions that are at odds with one another is, you know, it's, it's actually healthy for a democracy. So, yeah. Yeah. Like this is my, this is my interpretation of class conflict is like, I call this like the tripartite war, right? Which is like, you have um, social, you have basically people who just want to grill, you have social climbers and you have people who want to build, right? And, and then like the middle, the middle group is at war with the other two. And, and this is like parallel with like, it's the real economy, which is 
both the people who are innovating and the people who are working with their hands, contributing something, you know, like tangible, right. Versus, you know, basically like middle management HR jobs. Right. Um, but, but yeah, like, is that, is that what it actually looks like from the kind of, you know, middle-class conservative viewpoint? Maybe not, right? Maybe they just see tech as like overwhelmingly their enemy as well. Or I definitely know people who, who, who think that way as well. So yeah, that, that, I don't know, like in, in terms of like the actual economic consequences and in terms of like the actual struggle over like what policies get passed, I'm not sure this is a challenge to my model, but maybe when it comes to like the perception and how, like whether those two sides can actually work together, right. That is actually a very important challenge. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, now, now that we're talking about this, I, you know, this, this thought occurred to me that, you know, in the, in, in the medium term or the long term, maybe, maybe it was even a good thing that um, I know it doesn't feel good, but maybe it was uh, was like generally, uh, uh, you know, good that the media decided to have to, to to have this conflict with tech because then it did create, uh, you know, oppositional uh, elite factions. Whereas, well, if, I don't think they really had a choice. Yeah, well, like if the media did not declare war on tech, they would have just been out competed. And like no, no one would read the news. Well, I'm not talking about like you know this is sort of like a, a uh, like a broader like taking a step back from the, from from the conflict itself, but just like saying that if they decided not to, or if you know if it hadn't occurred, you know if if somehow right like they they decided not to do this and they allied in some way, then you would have just had like yet another uh, elite faction. Uh, partner with, uh, you know, broadly the, the political left. So in some ways, you know, maybe this was, this was a good thing that, that this, this occurred. Um, and yeah, I think like the model of like climbers versus builders, that's, I mean, that, that, that makes sense to me. I mean, tech is a weird, it's, it's, it's peculiar because like there is building involved, but it's not like physically, like, you know, physically building. And so it's sort of like in this in between space between like, you know, you're not building with your hands, but you are building a product, but you're working in the world of, of, of bits. And so that has a lot to do with like sort of knowledge work and, and people who, yeah, use their laptops. So they're, you know, like, I think broadly speaking, yeah. Like if you actually build, like physically build things, like it's, it's a near certainty that, that you're, you know, going to, going to be politically conservative or on the right in some way. Um, and I mean, interestingly, like this is even true, like within professions, uh, like doctors, for example, like surgeons are the most likely to be Republican and they like literally are using their hands right, and psychiatrists right. are most likely to be liberals. And they're the ones who are like, you know, like, like not actually like physically practicing, uh, medicine. So like with their hands. So, um, so I think like, yeah, the, the closer you are to actually like constructing, and building like the more likely you are to be on the right in some way. And the more likely you are, to, and, and then like the, yeah, the more likely you are to like use your, your brain to like, like, like manipulate symbols, right. Then the more likely you are to be on the left. Um, at least for now, I don't think this is like a hard and fast rule or some like ultimate uh, rule of, of politics, but just like at the moment in, in America and the Western world, I think generally like there's something about that. And so tech is, tech is interesting. Like they, they were kind of like a wild card that could go, go either way. And I think for a while they were drifting like 
to the left. I think broadly speaking, right, probably most tech people are still Democrats, but there is this um, this sort of question marking over it where I think people are shifting and like like Elon Musk likes to tweet about how he's uh, he's kind of a Republican, but not really, or he's only going to vote for the liberal Republicans, but you know, which I think in itself is sort of symbolic of uh, the the ambiguity around whether like the building and tech is it is it more on the right or on the left? Are they building? Yeah. Are they manipulating? He, he's symbols? kind of like a moderate libertarian. Yeah. yeah, like most tech people are not. You know, like they're not social conservatives. They're they're yeah. they're like mostly libertarians. Yeah, right. It's not quite the same, mm-hmm. but. Well, even even Substack is interesting too. Where like you're you are kind of like people who who write on Substack are sort of politically heterodox or like gen- at least like they're less likely to be on like the hard progressive left, and in a way they're kind of building something too, like like in the world of symbols. But there's something about I think like striking out on your own, like taking risks, like something about like risk taking um, seems to be more more associated with with broadly being on the right. Yeah, I don't know. Like, you have Ken Klippenstein, Ryan Grimm, or, like, it, it's, like, it's, like, um, yeah, it's, like, right or heterodox people and, like, socialists, right? It's just not, not, like, the social progressive left. Yeah. It's everyone except them. And then the jobs that are, like, the most physically hazardous, right? Uh, like, people who work on oil rigs or or, like, police and military or firefighters, um, I mean, there may be a gender, a gender, uh, uh, effect here too, where just like men are more likely to be on the right. But I think like, even if you, uh, like compared female police officers, yeah, but like the median, the to... median firefighter is definitely more right wing than the median man. Right. Exactly. And, and same for women. The median brand is not like yeah, yeah. that like, right wing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so yeah, like the median, uh, female firefighter too, compared to, yeah, to, to the median woman. So, so I think like, yeah, the, like something about danger and, and risk and building and all those things, like, like sort of existing in the physical world and and taking either uh, physical or, or social risks reputational risks um at least for now things may 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 change i think maybe maybe even like 60 or 70 years ago uh at least like taking taking reputational risks might have actually you might have been more more likely to be on the left um back when the establishment yeah. was more conservative and, and like all of, like the actual terrorists were left wing right yeah. like the anarchists right 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 yeah. exactly so so yeah it's it's yeah again not a hard and fast rule of politics but just how things are sort of playing out right now Right. Um, yeah, so I have this written down. Uh, ha- have you read the Richard Hanania article that is like, uh, men don't want meaning they want sex and violence or something like that? <laughs> I should have actually yeah. grabbed the actual link, but yeah. Yeah, I, I read that one. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Richard, Richard's uh, Substack is, is one of the, <laughs> it's one of the good ones. Yeah. Uh, so, so what did you think of what do you think of the thesis of that article? Actually, I'll explain it for the audience. Yeah. Well, it's basically what it says on the title, right? You know, he he makes the case and he he looks at like this happiness gap that I think is very interesting. Of like most, you know, average the average American is actually quite satisfied with his or her own life uh, as compared to you know like elite sentiment or media sentiments. And he basically makes the case that yeah, most most men at least wants you know, entertainment, they want sports, they want some kind of like simulation, if not the actual thing of like sex and violence and, uh, and don't really care much for, you know, religion or that kind of like meaning. 
Yeah, I mean, I I found it relatively persuasive. I mean, I am sympathetic to the idea that like most people don't need like their lives to be directly interfered with or meddled with and that people are you know pretty pretty good at figuring out uh you know how they should how they should live their lives. Um I think that people could use more sort of influence and direction, not not like a like a coercion necessarily, but just like, you know, more models of good behavior, especially, you know, in in environments where like you know, like like adults in that community are not modeling good behavior to have like more pop cultural representations of like how to how to behave and how to how to how to have like a stable relationship and things like that. But but even like even without that, even as things stand right now, like people are probably better off like not not being like directly meddled with or interfered with. Uh, and I have like yeah, like sort of that that bias towards towards freedom. Um, two, I guess one thing that I I wasn't sold on. I think he he may have overstated that the elites are are more miserable than everyone else. I think that's true for like a, a subset of the elites, like a faction of the elites, maybe the cultural elites, uh, like the the sort of the like people who spend a lot of time on Twitter, maybe like the journalist class. Because part of the reason why you get that job in the first place is because you're unhappy and you want to change. Like you're 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 dissatisfied with the state of things, and you think that like by getting those kinds of jobs, you can you can change, uh, change how you know how how society is operated. Um, yeah, you want to make a difference, TM. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, yes. yeah. But but I, yeah. I but I think like broadly the elites, right? Like it depends again, like because the word is kind of um, thorny and and difficult to to define. But if you look at like, you know, uh, uh, people who are extremely wealthy, uh, like high net worth individuals, like studies do indicate that they are happier than average. Uh, some There's some inconsistencies directly with happiness, right? Like how you measure it, like in psychology, you know, like like your hedonic affect, like how much positive versus negative emotion you experience day to day. Some research indicates that above, I think it's above $75,000 a year, your day to day emotional state isn't, isn't so different uh, once you start earning more than that. But your life satisfaction does tend to uh, directly increase with um, with income, and life life satisfaction is like you know like the question is something like if you if you sort of like take a step back from your life and evaluate as a whole like how fulfilled and satisfied do you feel with it, and rich people tend to feel more satisfaction with their lives with that question than than uh, than others. So, um. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know if like the elites generally are are, un, are are more or less unhappy than anyone else. Um, so yeah, but but I, I yeah, I agree that like the the kinds of elites that people are exposed to day to day, the people who make fools of themselves on social media, like they are clearly uh, many of them unhinged and unhappy. What about the idea that most people are not looking for for meaning? Hmm. Uh, I think that's meaning. Yeah, that one I'm not as sh- I don't think it, for most people I don't think it's a conscious decision to search for meaning. I think for most people like uh living a conventional life is is good enough and and I think like even if people are lacking something I, I don't think it surfaces in people's minds as like a conscious thought that like oh, I like meaning. How do I get meaning? Uh I think that is probably more of a preoccupation with the the educated class. Um, it's really a question you can only ask yourself once your basic physical needs are met in the first place, right? Because like, like staying alive is meaning enough. 
um, for most people, uh, like, like in developing countries where, you know, if you're just struggling to, to, um, collect enough material resources to sustain yourself and your, and your loved ones, like that in itself is, is a form of meaning. And in a way, like, you know, this is, this is something that I've, I've been trying to work out for a while about how, and 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 maybe this ties into your blank slate argument too or your blank yeah like the the, the, the you, you mentioned this this blank slate idea earlier which is like people are all the same which is that i think like a lot of people who are who are you know intelligent who are sort of like candidates for the upper middle class or who are already in the upper middle class um their idea of like uh of a fulfilling life is something something along the lines of like once once people have their material resources once they have their basic physical needs met then they can go on to uh to pursue meaning to pursue fulfillment satisfaction like but 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 at the moment like you know as you're sort of scrounging around and and trying to uh sustain yourself and the people who rely on you you know that's that's um that's not that's not satisfying right like you like once the once you are able to do that or once the state or something is able to do that for you then you can go on to this thing called meaning um but actually for most people and and this is i think where i agree with richard is that for most people who aren't particularly bright or talented or um you know what have you like for most people they get meaning even if it doesn't surface as a conscious, even if it's like a conscious, like, oh, this is how I get meaning. Just they, they receive like satisfaction. They feel fulfilled in the act of, uh, uh, obtaining, uh, resources and, and caring for their loved ones by like working a menial job or trying to make ends meet. And even if day to day, it's not particularly fun. I think like for them, like that is the meaning that they get is like, I'm doing this to like help myself and help the people around me and that is like the closest that a lot of people can actually get to to meaning right like if you if you were to give them a ubi or something they wouldn't like suddenly find meaning in like travel and start you know taking up painting and become like an artistic and creative and interesting person they like for many of those people they would just start to take opioids and watch tv and jack off and like like squander their life away um and that wouldn't be meaningful even if like hedonically that would be you know pleasurable in some sense um, for most people, I think the, the, the very act of taking care of themselves, even if it requires like day to day, like menial, uh, you know, uh, unpleasant labor, um, that, that, that is sort of like where, where the meaning comes from. And, and interesting, like there's some, some research on this about like how happiness and meaning can, can be distinguished. Yeah. I don't think this is purely binary either, right? Like going to your, going to your sports league, Right. Or like watching a game, watching like a football game, soccer game. Right. Like, is that, is that hedonic or is that like finding meaning? Like it could be both. Right. Like, well, like playing in your sports league, that, that's like, I think a good example. Right. You know, you're, you're getting together with a group of friends as a kind of community there. Right. But at the same time, it's just like, you know, it's a fun time. It's not, you know, super kind of, you know, novel or innovative or whatever, but it's, it's a good time, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so the research I've seen on happiness and meaning the, the correlation between the two, the, the correlation coefficient is something like 0.3. So, you know, if you, really, yeah, yeah. So, so it's not, not as strong as you would think. 
And for meaning, interestingly, uh, meaning positively correlates with negative life experiences. Uh, so, <laughs> but, but happiness is, is negatively correlated with, uh, negative, negative life experiences, unsurprisingly, right? Like the more bad experiences you have, the less yeah. happy you tend to be, but the more meaning you tend to feel. Um, and I think like maybe part of that is just like whatever, like, you know, what, what, uh, you know, what the, the kids would call cope. Right. Like, you know, if you if you suffer and you have a lot of setbacks in your life, you know, it's 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 like a part of your psychological immune system to to create a meaning out of that. Like, that's how like, like that's how humans have survived for this long. Like most humans have lived extremely brutal lives on the edge of death. And so they had to, you know, like the, the humans that survived were able to to create elaborate forms of meaning out of that suffering. So. um so yeah, like the, the like playing fantasy sports league and things like that. Like yeah, I think it's probably more associated with happiness than than with meaning. Like meaning tends to to um come about more so through through like social interactions, like doing something with or for other people. Uh that is like more more associated with meaning whereas happiness is just sort of more like uh more more what like self-centered, self like in- individualistic. Yeah. Um, hmm. Right. This this is quite interesting. It does go into the kind of, you know, like internecine conflict between the sort of Nietzschean right and the social conservative right of like, oh, do people want to be compelled to, or do people themselves feel compelled to a kind of higher purpose or not? I think most people know. I think like, it wasn't that one of Richard's points, right? That most people aren't like seeking some self transcendent, you know, higher purpose or something. Um, but, but, but I think like a few people are and, and often like, you know, it's just proportionately people who, who are like, you know, high IQ, educated, uh, people who are able to, to, to reflect and think about those questions. And, you know, are, are sort of cognitively equipped to do so. Those are the people who start to like seek meaning and, and higher purpose and so on. Whereas I think, yeah, most people are, uh, you know, relatively content to, to get by. And, uh, if, if, um, if they lack, if they lack social connections, I think like they can feel some kind of void within them, but it doesn't necessarily, um, you know, like damage their, their sense of, like, like at least directly or, or overtly damage their sense of meaning. They just feel this sort of vague sense of lack. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. The, the, I guess like often we have like these sort of models of human nature, like oh, all humans are like this or all humans are like that. I think like, yeah, people are different and, um, you know, the, the striving for meaning is, is much more of a sort of an affluent, uh, educated person thing. Yeah. All right, so we've gone two hours. So for the audience, my invitation to Rob said something like, hey, do you want to come on to the podcast and talk about Eric Barron and psychoanalysis? It's been two hours. We have not talked about psychoanalysis at all. All right. <laughs> well. So so we can start on that. Actually, do you want to take a, do you want to take a short break? Yeah, sounds before good. Before we do that? Yep. Yeah, I, I want to refill some tea. Yeah, that would be great. Okay, so see you back here in, uh, in five minutes. All right, sounds good. Uh, so we are back. And first question, who is Eric Barron and uh, what is transactional psycho- uh, psychoanalysis? Uh, so, so it's not transactional psychoanalysis, it's just called transactional analysis. 
T T A, right? Like that's the you know. So so yeah, Eric Byrne. He was a, a psychiatrist and, and psycho psychoanalyst back in the day. So he he wrote this book, um, Games People Play, published in 1964. And it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's considered, uh, at least within transactional analysis, like the foundational text. And the book has sold some, you know, some, some high number, some millions of, of copies. You, you can still see this book sometimes in like airport bookstores and in, you know, like Barnes and Noble and places where you wouldn't normally find, you know, like scarce shelf space reserved for a book written 60 years ago with the author long dead. Uh, so something about this book has, you know, it has some enduring appeal. Um, I think the title itself is kind of catchy, but interestingly, like the book itself is, uh, uh, you know, more, more dense than you would expect based on, based on the title. So yeah, uh, Eric Byrne came up with this, uh, this field uh, within psychology called transactional analysis and it is, you know, his his um, framework for understanding certain kinds of social interactions uh, structured around his idea of strokes, which are, you know, basically like uh, like uh, units of of interaction, of recognition, of validation that people give one another. Uh, it's like you know the sort of the real world equivalent of giving someone a like on social media. It's sort of that feeling of of being recognized and validated and so forth. Um, so his idea is that you know people need strokes to stay alive, um, and he you know built off of the research uh, in the 1960s, right? Like so, there was John Bowlby and some other uh, developmental psychologists who were working with like the you know, looking at the mother infant bond and so forth. Basically, that that um, like physical strokes were actually necessary for for babies to survive, and he extended this idea to sort of social strokes. And I found that idea interesting because so so you know this is an old book. It's not assigned in any any psychology course at all. Like I didn't learn about it in undergrad and in grad school. Nothing about like nothing about psychoanalysis. Nothing really about Freud. Like all of this. So like it's like now that I'm done with my formal education, like this is like now when I can go back and actually read some of these like old foundational texts uh, that are, you know, considered today like passe or just like not really um, relevant in the academic literature. But this idea of strokes also connects to, um, at least in my view, like I, I, you know, I don't know if anyone else has actually written about this, but I've, I discussed this in, in that Substack post about how it's um, is associated or, or, or ties into Robin Dunbar's idea of of grooming. So Robin Dunbar is a is a current eminent evolutionary psychologist at Oxford, uh, who wrote a book about this idea about how uh, small talk among humans is essentially the human form of, of of primate grooming. So chimpanzees and orangutans and other great apes, you know, they they literally groom each other, picking insects off of one another, despite the fact that oftentimes like they groom each other, even when they don't have any insects, even like it's not the, the main reason why, why apes groom um, Dunbar has found is not for hygiene, but rather for building social bonds and connections. So apes will groom one another to basically form alliances and who grooms who also has like status dynamics and so forth embedded within it. But Dunbar extended this to humans indicating like we don't actually groom each other, but what we do instead to, to sort of um, 
validate each other, to, to sort of smooth the path to, to, to relationships and bonds and so forth is uh, through, through small talk, through sort of regular uh, verbal contact with one another. And this is, uh, you know, this is basically like, like a stroke too. Uh, so, so that's one aspect, like this idea of strokes. And then Burns says that, um, you know, we, we, we seek strokes and if we can't do it through sort of authentic, interpersonal, honest interactions, uh, people will get caught up in these games. And, you know, he has like a series of games around three dozen games that he outlines in his book and, these games are basically um, uh, sort of rackets. They're sort of ways for people to receive strokes, uh, to receive some kind of attention, validation for their worldview, for how they feel about themselves and about others. And they got caught up in these in these kind of games uh, in order to fulfill this this need. And you know, if people can't get their strokes through honest, authentic interactions, then they'll play these games to get them uh instead and the idea here being that like even a negative stroke is better than no stroke at all right like it's you know being mm, being neglected yes. is the worst right like being being insulted doesn't feel great but it's still better than than being completely uh overlooked and and uh and, and completely like ostracized um so that's like sort of the the broad strokes here like so to speak right like we're all seeking these strokes and <laughs> is that um, we're trying to, you know, his book is about how people will get them through these sort of deceptive ways. Uh, deceptive not only to others, but even to the player themselves. Like even the person playing the game isn't necessarily aware that they're playing these games. But but anyway, so so that's that's like maybe a starting point for us. Right. So, so these kind of games are like self-destructive, at, at least from the kind of psychiatrist's view, self-destructive patterns of behavior that maybe make themselves that maybe make them very dissatisfied, make them um, really feel negative, feel like poorly about themselves, but are, um, or, or make others feel poorly, uh, but are kind of fulfilling this kind of need for, for attention, right. Or need for strokes basically. Yeah. 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 That's, that's right. I mean, and, and so the games are, uh, yeah, they're often, they give rise to, negative feelings, uh, both in the person who, who initiated the game, but also, uh, yeah, of course, through, through the people who have to suffer through them too. Uh, but, but yeah, they, they still get caught up in them because for them, this be, like these games become these social games, they become a reliable way of, um, of, of getting these strokes and they don't trust honest, authentic communication and uh because the uh, it potentially risks vulnerability but something about the game something about the the ritualized um uh roles involved uh and the sort of predictable payoffs there's something psychologically safe about it and so that's why why they play and and you know, i don't know if it would help but we can we can like maybe give examples of of games too but but yeah that's sort of the general yeah, idea sure. and, and i i should add for the audience that of course, if you want uh, a much wider list of games and applications to to your life, you should check out Rob Henderson's Substack, and I'll be linking uh, many of the posts we mentioned as as well as this one in the notes. Uh, but, <laughs> right. but yeah, please please exp- explain uh, whichever one you want. Well, okay, so 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 Burn likes to use, and I, I guess I, one thing I should say, so so I did a, a three part series on this book, 
And but by no means am I like a, an expert in transactional analysis. Like I read this book and a couple of others. Uh, but I, like, this is like a, a apparently like a still a burgeoning field, and I'm sure there's like a lot of you know a lot of updates and so forth. But but my knowledge is mostly limited to games people play and and some some other like supplementary texts. But but in any case, so so Burn um, he likes to use salesmen uh, to to illustrate his his idea of games because like it's just an easy example, right? Like salesmen are always working even when they're not on the clock. They always have some kind of ulterior motive. You know, they're always like on the make, trying to get a client, trying to sign a deal, trying to, you know, uh, basically obtain some ultimate uh, economic payoff. Um, so they'll engage in these interactions, but they conceal this kind of skillful hidden maneuver uh, to, you know, fulfill their, their, their hidden aim. But in this case, like the salesman is aware of what they're, what they're doing. Uh, but, but Burns point is that like, we're all kind of salesmen in the sense or maybe maybe that's not fair, but people who play games, right? Like I should make that clear. Not every interaction is a game, right? Like the games are inherently duplicitous and inherently uh, tend to have like sort of detrimental outcomes for people. And so, so yeah, basically like if, if there's some kind of like a psychological uh, concealed motive involved, then then it would be considered a game. But but uh, if it's an honest interaction, right? Like one, one simple example is like if you give someone uh, reassurance, right? Like if someone is feeling bad about themselves and you give them reassurance and they accept it and say, they say thank you or something like that, that would be an honest and authentic interaction. But if you reassure them and then they find a way to undercut your reassurance or undercut you for saying it, then that would be considered a game because what they're not, they're not actually looking for reassurance, right? They're looking for a way to lash out, to, to undermine someone else, to, uh, lift themselves up in, in that way. So, um, so yeah, he gives a list of, of different kinds of games. I think the one of, one of the games that I, I found particularly relevant to, uh, sort of current sociopolitical trends. So he gives them these kind of cutesy, I don't know if QT is the right word because some of them have like, you know, there's, there's actual like, like vulgar terms used, but they, he gives them these kind of like funny names, amusing names, I think as a way to, um, to maybe soften the edges around them so that people will maybe not get so upset. Maybe if they recognize themselves in it or recognize others in it, it's, uh, it's a sort of a playful way to communicate these, uh, um, you know, less, less than pleasant, uh, aspects of, of, of human interaction. So one game is called, uh, now I've got you, you son of a bitch. Uh, <laughs> and he, he basically says that, uh, you know, he, he, he gives this example in his book of like someone needing some plumbing fixtures installed and, you know, before hiring a plumber, but before, uh, yeah, before he actually uh, had the plumber, um, uh, install these, these fixtures, they went through the cost and they agreed on the cost. Afterwards, the plumber uh, charges him a few extra dollars for some kind of unexpected procedure that needed to be done. And so the person who hires the plumber lashes out, he blows up at him and refuses to pay the bill, demands the plumber get fired, uh, you know, claims he's been exploited and victimized and so forth, all over a trivial amount of money. And so Byrne basically says that... Um, you know, the, the, the payoff here was actually being infuriated all along, right? He couldn't let this go. There's something like at the psychological level, this person is exploiting uh, a trivial, but still socially, uh, defensible, uh, objection to, to the plumber. 
and all of this is sort of uh, uh, pent up frustration at an acceptable target. It's a it's a way to sort of uh, experience a secret delight at what this this plumber has done to him. It, this 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 plumber's kind of microaggression, right? Like this person commits, you know, a relatively minor uh, uh, tr- uh, transgression against you, and now you can latch onto that and and get one over on them and potentially ruin their life which is maybe what you what you were looking for all along and so so the the aim here is like this sort of justification for the rage uh the uh ability to point out someone's flaw and to uh to 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 sort of vindicate this existential uh point of view that like everyone is out to get you and you know so so Byrne was writing in the early 1960s and he gave this 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 sort of simple example with a client and the plumber but i thought that this could i mean this could easily extend to, to so much of what we're seeing today where people are yeah. are um you know what is it like taking very uncharitable uh positions on on minor uh uh statements of others looking for you know that that extra that extra charge that they put on the receipt that, that that shouldn't have been there this sort of minor minor error uh, as a way to to blow up at them over the over this sort of uh, minute um, yeah yeah this sort of minute infraction and that, yeah so so that's like one example of, of a game here where you sort of overreact at a very slight uh, mistake that someone else has made and. In a way, someone like that who plays those kinds of games is looking for this everywhere. They're they're constantly looking for um, people who have who have wronged them, even in the most minor way, so that they can vindicate their their worldview that that everyone is everyone is a jerk, everyone's out to get them. Right, right. And to me, something remarkable is that this this kind of theory from I think what was 1960, 1960 something, nineteen sixty four, yeah, I think does an excellent job of explaining basically bureaucratic discourse, right? Like why there is such a blow up of meetings. It's like it, it is really the same thing as as the chimps uh, being in the meetings as a kind of coalitional uh, coalitional power struggle. Sometimes over real things, right? Over over budget and over resources, but as a way of basically forming those tribes and signaling and doing those things. In, in these, you know, basically um, negative sum or, you know, sometimes even uh, self-destructive, so certainly destructive to the organization itself th- these ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the games do a good job of explaining like a lot of a lot of um, social phenomena, a lot of interpersonal interactions that on the surface, they just seem to be they, they don't seem to make sense. They don't seem to be um, like productive in any way, but once you um, once you understand that, like you know, I, I think a lot of a lot of people have this, um, you know, like what what like some some version of the rational actor model of like you know people are trying to uh, maximize their bottom line, you know, their, their 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 economic income, or or even even something like status, right? Like I talk a lot about status, yeah. and so people are like, oh, they're really trying to maximize their status, but. Under the the transactional analysis framework, like people are trying to seek, like like hidden emotional payoffs, like uh, validating their sort of existential emotional worldview about like how things are, how thing how they should be treated. I mean, a lot of this stuff is connected to um to like Byrne writes about life scripts. You know, this is like sort of like a yeah, this is like a psychoanalytic idea about like how people from an early age <clears throat> through through their early life experiences. 
Um, and, you know, this was like, you know, before the era of like behavioral genetics and so on, or at least I think it is, but, you know, the, the psychoanalytic framework, people have this. this yes, yeah, so certainly be yeah. before it, like yeah. the, the gene-wide co- correlations were really right. established. And so it was, there was a, a lot of preoccupation with like early life experiences, parent-child interactions, all of those things. And over time, like, you know, a young child develops a, a, an unconscious script about how their life should go. Like, you know, if they, they might view themselves as a loser or, or as a winner or as someone who is destined to have a certain kind of life. And so they go around trying to vindicate this script that they have for themselves, this sort of unconscious script. And so they go around playing these games um, in order to, to validate it, right? Like, so there's this game uh, that Byrne likes to, Byrne has written about. And, and this is, I think, one of his more, more well-known games because... Uh, yeah, I think he, he says something like, uh, in his book that this game, why don't you, yes, but it's, why don't you M dash? Yes, but, and he says that it's, <laughs> uh, it was the original stimulus for the concept of games. It was like one of the first games that he, uh, he developed. And the idea is basically that, you know, people, you know, when people, uh, uh, point out some kind of problem that they're, that they have, the natural reaction is to, offer solutions. But Byrne says that actually the person has an unconscious life script such that they don't want to actually improve their life. They, they, they derive most of their enjoyment and satisfaction from uh, showing off how bad their misfortunes are and how you couldn't possibly come up with a solution that could help them because, you know, they're, they're just so unique and special and so downtrodden that nothing you say could, could help them. Um, and so, you know, the idea is like, you know, if someone has a problem, you say, why don't you do this? And they say, yes, but I can't because this. And then, you you know, you go through this a few times. The more people who play this game with the uh, the individual who has the, the problem, the better it is for them. Because it's just like each each suggestion they shoot down, each person they shoot down, uh, they secretly derive some some pleasure from showing just like how how uh, how unique they are for for uh not being able to to find a solution and the fact that that nobody could uh could help them uh just vindicates their belief that um that that nothing nothing can help them and this sort of validates their their unconscious life script right right what's interesting is that to me this is kind of the or like i'm sure you've seen probably like this piece of dating advice is like a tweet or something Right. But like, I mean, like even my dad gave me this, this piece of dating advice, right. Which is like a lot of the time, right. If, if you are, uh, if you're talking to your partner, especially if you're, you know, a man talking to a, a woman, uh, you'll be in the situation where she asks for, or like she talks about some problem and really the goal is to get, you know, validation or to get, uh, to get, um, Basically, like, um, at- attention seems like even the too negative interpretation of it, but really to basically, like, strengthen a bond, demonstrate that you actually um, care about this person and not necessarily to come to, like, an actual solution, right? I- I'm not sure, like, would, would Baron characterize this as a game? Would he characterize this as necessarily a negative Wait, 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 wait. So, so explain it again. Like, explain the advice. Like, what, what is it that, that uh, to, to contact a, a girl that you like? Right, right. No, no, this is this is mainly if you're already in a relationship. Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. So the the main problem. This is like especially a problem with libertarians, and by libertarians I mean autists. <laughs> is like 
<laughs> Sorry, we're in, we're in hour three of the podcast, man. <laughs> this is a very common problem with, you know, software engineers. And by software engineers, I mean libertarians, is, is that they'll have... Um, and this isn't necessarily always a romantic relationship. This could just be a friend, right? A, a person say to them, you know, here's this problem I have. And really that person just wants, you know, empathy and to be um, time taken care of and to feel better right. in the moment and not really wanting, you know, you to you to plan out, you know, a, a, like a five-year plan for them, <laughs> yeah. right? That's the kind of exaggerated version of it, right? But, but not necessarily wanting, you know, like practical solutions to whatever problem they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that would be, would that be an example of a game? Well, I guess if they directly ask you for advice and then they shoot down everything, that would that would definitely be a game. But if it's just um, sort of commiserating, because often what happens in these kinds of of dynamics is, you know, like a like a woman will will have you know some like some some unfortunate experience, someone they don't get along with at work or something, something's going on, and um, and I think like the for a man like the like often the initial immediate and and probably especially for like a you know for for libertarians the initial reaction would be to immediately start coming up with practical solutions. Well, why don't you do this? Why can we do that? And so on and so forth. And, uh, and I think like in this case, um, often when, you know, like they're, they're not like, they're not seeking solutions in the first place, right? Like they didn't ask you for your help. If they didn't ask, then it may just be like them communicating something and, and yeah, probably looking for, you know, some, some sympathy, eliciting some kind of understanding or compassion or something. I don't know if that would be, a game because I think this would this might be an honest interaction, especially if the woman is like clearly looking for understanding, which I think is like you know these interactions they usually well yeah may, maybe not to libertarians but generally like I think it's pretty important <laughs> that like you know they just want to talk right and yeah. um yeah and they just want to uh to bond and to interact and I don't think there's necessarily inherently anything um. Uh, you know, there's no gimmick here. There's no, there's no racket of, of trying to like trap you or trying to like get one over on you, really. It seems like a pretty straightforward thing. Unless again, unless they say like, Oh, I'm having this, this issue with so and so. What should I do? And then each, each solution you come up with, they, they just shoot it down and give you reasons why it would never possibly work. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's an interesting, that's an interesting example. Right. Yeah. I think. Yeah, thinking about these kind of strokes, and I think I, I kind of like developed a, a a kind of like rough estimate of it. Although reading your post and eventually reading this book, I think was a kind of step forward. It really kind of like reorients how I think about you know maintaining relationships, not not necessarily romantic, but like re- retaining like friendships, business relationships, you know, like. Let's say, you know, I'm sure many, there are many such people in my audience, young people wanting to potentially, you know, build a startup, work in politics or something like that. And they want to build successful, you know, like essentially co-founder relationships, right? Like really strong bonds. What, what would kind of Baron have to say, or what would this kind of like broader understanding have to say about how he or she would go about doing that? Yeah, I don't know if, uh, at least in, in the transactional analysis framework, if Byrne would have any kind of like useful advice as far as like healthy, 
uh, interactions other than like avoiding these games, right? Like don't get caught up in these kind of duplicitous interactions where someone is, you know, there's something dishonest about their actions that maybe they themselves aren't even aware of, but they're trying to trap you into some kind of drama, some kind of, uh, uh, um, like unsatisfying interaction that, that descends into toxicity. Um, so, so yeah, for burn, I don't think there's, there's much there. I do think like maybe, maybe like focusing on emphasis on like sort of, um, yeah, introspection and, and, to, to understand your own motives a bit more and understand like, you know, why am I getting into this interaction? What am I actually getting out of this? Is it, is it, uh, is it a healthy way to, to operate? Um, and then also to avoid people who, yeah, avoid people who play these kinds of games too, right? Like I think a lot of young people in particular uh, can be can be sort of uh, misguided in thinking that, um, you know, that that like people are who they are, generally speaking. Uh, you know, our personalities and our dispositions and our ways of interacting with people are more or less set. Like by the second decade of life, like right around twenty years old, early twenties, you kind of have like a pretty good sense of who people are and there's not much changing after that. So, you know, I think a lot of people want to save others or think that like, Oh, they're only like this in this kind of context, but they're different in other contexts. It's sometimes true. Uh, but not always they, the contexts have to be vastly different, right? Like people can be your friend. Um, but like once money is involved, like if you try to enter a business relationship with them, that will, that will, uh, probably more likely than not fail. Um, you know, like Naval Ravikant has this, you know, he has this pretty good line about how, um, you know, if you, you can turn a business partner into a friend, but you shouldn't try to turn a friend into a business partner, uh, you know, just because like really? yeah, introducing, mm-hmm. introducing money into, uh, like a, like a, a personal, uh, relationship, uh, will, will, will often bring out things in people that you didn't know were there. Um, so yeah. And like, so the sort of vastly different context. So, um, yeah. So, but there are other, I mean, there are other great, uh, like books about like sort of developing relationships and staying in touch. There's a great book, um, by Keith Ferrazzi called Never Eat Alone, uh, which, which was for me, especially like, uh, a few years ago is really helpful in like trying to just sort of like, uh, develop and maintain, uh, sort of like weak tie relationships. I mean, I think like building friendships, I guess like, yeah, if you're, if you're, you know, like, uh, like introverted or especially shy or something like friends can be hard, but I think most people are pretty good at like making friends, but as far as like weak tie relationships, uh, those are like, I think a little bit trickier, like having a, you know, like there, there are people I know like Rolodexes, you know, like you know, digital Rolodex, like, you know, hundreds or even thousands of people. And they somehow like manage to, to maintain these relationships and it's, it's perplexing. And, you know, I'm never going to like, I don't think I'll ever stay in touch with like thousands of people at once the way some of these people do, but the ability to, to sort of like develop, um, not quite friendships, but just like casual relationships with people who, um, who you want to stay connected with. Uh, that's, that's a pretty good book to do it. Um, but yeah, burn, I don't think would, would be like a good, uh, like if you want to be a founder, games people play, it'll teach you like who to avoid, but not like how to, how to develop uh, good relationships. I don't think. Yeah. I don't know. Just the, the, I, this idea of strokes, I think is very important and it's basically like to detect what kind of interaction people are looking for. I think, yeah, yeah. We did talk about that kind of gray area, but I think like most of it, he does talk about this in the book, right? Like there are a lot of patterns where people are seeking strokes, but it's not necessarily a game. Like when people kind of greet each other. 
Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, strokes yeah. aren't um, like strokes are normal. Strokes are natural, right? Like that's why I, I earlier yeah. compared them to, to to social grooming, right? Like small talk is natural. Small talk isn't isn't a game. Um, but but uh, so so strokes are just like basic units of social interactions under under his framework. Uh, but then like the ways that people uh, attempt to obtain them. Right. Like it's almost like money in a way. I don't know if this is like a perfect analogy, but it sort of gets at the idea that like there are honest and and straightforward ways to get money. And then there are sort of duplicitous, uh, you know, transgressive ways to obtain money. And so the strokes themselves are sort of what, like neutral, they're morally neutral um, units. But then when you play yeah. games, you're getting them through kind of illicit means through you know, elicit in the sense that you're either hurting others or hurting yourself uh, in an emotional way. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, that's the right way to think about this as well. Um, what's interesting is that, hmm, I don't know, I'm just, I'm just thinking about this and reflecting on my own kind of social group, because I think for a very long time, something that I subconsciously did was select very strongly against people who had a need for strokes or at least had a need for strokes from me. Right. Like in my, in my year end review, I had this, um, I had this quote from Curtis Jarvin and Michael Anton where they were talking about two types of conversation. Right. I think Curtis called it like essentially male versus essentially female conversations where one is like a conversation where you're trying to build coalitions, where you're trying to pretend to e agree with each other. And one is a, one is a conversation where you're basically trying to, trying to not just get at the truth, but get at the truth in like a very aggressive way and try in like almost like taunting the other person, you know, if they show signs that they're kind of like def defecting to the other type of discourse where they're just going to, where they're just going to try to agree with you, you actually want to like suss that out and actually, um, stop them from doing that. Like to me, that that kind of second type of discourse is something that I highly select for. Not even necessarily consciously, right? This is something that I noticed after you know already doing it for many many years of just like being very averse to people who you know very often try to switch the subject or to bring up or to start the subject at somewhere where there's like really nothing to nothing new to learn about the world, right? Hmm. Right. Yeah, I think that's not an, oh that's not an uncommon, uh, you know, like I, I, I think especially again for like a certain kind of like, you know, male brained. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, purse, like that's, that's not a, uh, you know, it's, I don't think there's anything wrong with that necessarily, but it does make things hard. It makes it harder, I think, to like sustain relationships especially for people who aren't like that i think two people who are oriented in that way can sort of build a kind of like an intellectual relationship a kind of like a you know having that kind of sparring partner relationship can work um but then yeah if if uh if you don't pay attention i think to like that first form of conversation about you know consensus and feelings and uh and small talk and all of those things uh, then yeah, your, your, your sort of social circle will, will be you know, more, more limited. Right. Well, what's really interesting to me is that I think, I think for a long time I had like a false belief that this was, I think it is kind of like IQ correlated to some extent, but it's also, 
you know, I, I had this kind of like understanding that I really didn't get actually, you know, like a very good opportunity for breaking for like me disconfirming my priors was going to UATX, right? Um, was basically meeting a lot of people who enjoyed the first type of conversation, but were also, you know, capable of the second type of conversation. Because before that, you know, I was mostly talking to, you know, there were like three group of groups of friends, which were like Chinese immigrants who I grew up with, um, you know, people who are basically research mathematicians or, or on the route to, and like software engineers, right? <laughs> and you, you can kind of see, yeah, you can see the correlation, uh, w- with certain personality types, um, in, in those groups, right? Where, where it very much was the case that like the people who were capable of the, of the second type of conversation were very much, you know, the people who would far prefer that type of conversation. Where, like, going to UATX and meeting people and, like, really traveling in general, like, which I did really starting last year, right, traveling to a lot of political conferences, I mean, right, and, and talking to people was really discovering that actually there's, like, a very large segment of the population who is, like, capable of thinking of ideas and, like, very much, you know, like, ha- have good ideas, right, but are also, you know, pretty interested in doing, like, the first type of conversation. Yeah. Well, how, how old are you, Brian? Uh, I am 22. 22. Yeah, I mean, you're... Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm not quite 22. Yeah. I'm almost 22. I mean, you're, so <laughs> yeah. 21. I mean, you're, you're a young guy. I mean, yeah, it'll, like, yeah, yeah. there's... um, Yeah, that's... That, that kind of personality type, I think, is actually, like, you know, relatively... Well, so that first type of conversation is, like, that's, like, the original type of human conversation, almost. Like, most humans throughout history haven't had, like, a deep interest in, like truth with a capital T or like discovering objective reality or like dense and interesting and abstract ideas or anything like that. Right. Like most conversation is about like bonding and consensus and making sure that everyone is sort of emotionally on the same page. Um, But yeah, I mean like very, like very smart people. There's probably a slight, there is a, yeah, I've seen research on this, like the, the, the kind of like, um, the stereotype that like smart people are necessarily like, you know, not like socially awkward or not interested in conversation or something like that. Like that's, that seems to be untrue there. I I have seen research indicating like a very small correlation between sort of like social adeptness and IQ. Um, But I, I think that like generally speaking, like students who attend elite universities tend to be pretty good. Like the ones who aren't indoctrinated, uh, politically, like they tend to be pretty good at like bouncing back and forth between those two modes of communication where they can be sort of socially polished and, and, you know, curious and, and, you know, socially adept, but then also like can switch over to this sort of like more abstract, you know, sort of decoupling way of thinking about ideas in the world. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily like two different personality types, um, but I, but I would say, yeah, like, like a, a smaller percentage of the population is even capable of that second kind of, 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 uh, discussion. Yeah. I think, hmm. What's interesting though is that I'm, I think the correlation is actually stronger at the institutional level, right? I think like an institution that primarily does the second type of conversation is going to be growing much more, is going to be like providing a much better product than an organization that primarily does the first. Yeah, but I think that... Right, like, you can see this... Well, I think that the... I mean, the problem with, like, you know, so so much of, of like, innovation and with, um, 
you know, developing and building is that you also have to sell, right? Like you have to market and not, right. and, and, and that requires in, in some respect, like the first kind of conversation, like, like, uh, you know, like learning how to manage people's egos, right? Like if you want to, you know, uh, get, get money for your startup, or if you want to persuade someone to, to get coffee or whatever it is, like, however, you know, whatever the steps you're trying to, to take, like you do have to sort of learn how to have like, you know, so some level of like pleasant small talk kind of conversations. Now, occasionally, like, you know, two people who already two people who are who are, you know, they, they've never met in person, but they're aware of one another. Um, you know, like I've had these kind of conversations where someone like is, is aware of who I am and I'm aware of who they are. And then you can just sort of skip all the niceties and jump straight into um, to substantive conversation. But like if, if they've never heard of you, like they want to know that you're like a normal person capable of having that first kind of conversation before they are interested in hearing about your ideas and and thoughts and so forth. And I think that is a kind of a, uh, you know, that's, that's sort of like a social grooming behavior of like, you know, we need to sort of groom each other a little bit first before we can, we can trust each other. Yeah. Um, actually, yeah, this, this might be a fun way to, a fun way to end off the course or, or the end, end off. Oh my goodness. I'm already, I'm pretty tired now. A fun way to end off the podcast uh, which is, um, you have, I think, just announced, uh, they just announced it, an, another uh, another course at the University of Austin, right? Mm-hmm. This one is, I think, like the psychology, the psychology of morals. Is the that, psychology is that right? of morality, yep. Right, right. Um, so what is this course? You know, why should people apply to it? Oh, man, <laughs> right? I have to sell this. We were just talking about marketing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Speaking of marketing. Right. I mean, yeah, it's a, so so yeah, I mean, last year, last summer I taught the psychology of social status. That was something I was thinking about. I mean, I still think about it quite a bit. Um, but I thought I'd do something different this time. I mean, most of my, my PhD research over the last four years, you know, now, now I finished up, but you know, from, from the start of my PhD program to the end, I was doing research on moral psychology uh, a lot of it drawing from like moral foundations theory and yeah, how people come to form their moral judgments. What are the psychological and situational factors that can influence moral beliefs and behaviors? How people think about right and wrong, uh, cultural and social factors, how it ties into politics and, and disagreement. So yeah, I thought that, um, I thought this might be an interesting uh, area of inquiry for for students, and yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting ongoing research in moral psychology that I think, uh, yeah, like yeah, a lot of people would find appealing. Uh, moral dyad theory, typecasting, all of these kinds of things that I think are are relevant to to sort of ongoing um, political trends and might help people to to understand them a bit better. And so, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people will, will find this, will find this one interesting. Um, yeah. So it'll be the same, same kind of structure. It'll be a week. We'll have a seminar of, I don't know what it is, like 15 students this time, something along those lines. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll do some interesting readings. Of course, like I think a lot of people are, are familiar with like Jonathan Haidt's work, but we'll, we'll also read some other, other interesting work from um, Kurt Gray and, Paul Bloom on the development of, of morality. So there's like a lot of interesting research on moral psychology in infants. And, you know, this question of like, you know, this is sort of a, an old school moral philosophical question about whether humans have like an inborn sense of morality. Are we born with a moral compass or, or does it have to be sort of inculcated 
Um, so there's there's fascinating empirical research on that question uh, that that we'll we'll cover too, and sort of how that how that is sort of changed and informed by culture over time. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Just uh, apply, sign up. I I promise it won't be boring. Yeah, for sure. Uh, okay, so always, always the last question of the show. This is this is I think the third time you've answered it. Um, what is something that has too much order and needs more chaos, and something that has too much order, or sorry, it's something that has too much chaos and needs more order? Uh, okay, something that has too much order needs more chaos. Uh, too much order needs more chaos. I'll say San Francisco, and something that has too much chaos and needs more order. I'll say Singapore. <laughs> really you think singapore would benefit from more chaos no, no, no. Okay. more more order I, I was making a joke <laughs> uh um yeah that, that was my joke answer because yeah I, I don't know if i have a i don't know if i have a good answer um you know the, the joke was that san francisco is too too orderly and, and needs more chaos um so yeah i don't i don't know if i have a of a good answer for this one i, I you know if any answer that i would give was probably recycled from something i've already said before about like the higher education system or maybe maybe dating um right yeah that was definitely an answer yeah that's... so yeah 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 well i'll just uh go back to the other other discussions uh i had uh, for, for the listeners right they can they can listen to the, to the other answers because i'm not sure i can yeah. i can pull off another one uh at the moment i'm i'm also uh sort of sort of at the at the end of my my energy so oh man yeah yeah understandable honestly <laughs> It is it is the third time. I don't know if I would answer this question three times. Especially the more the more chaos one, I think. Most people have like one really good one for more chaos. And then they have it's usually pretty easy to come up with new ones for more order. But yeah. Um thanks for coming on again. It was great. Um we did finally get to uh Bernian uh transactional analysis. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. You wanted to talk about uh uh the last psychiatrist, but yeah, I guess we'll have to we'll table that one for for another time. All right, yeah, that that is also in my notes. Um but I did not I did not prepare prepare too much and you know, I didn't know how much we could cover in like 8 minutes. Right. So, yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, it was great and maybe maybe we'll have an episode for uh coming soon. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Brian. That was my episode with Rob Henderson. If you enjoyed it, like I said up top, the best thing you can do is let a friend know. You can also help us out by subscribing to the show, where you'll get a new episode every single Monday, leaving a positive review, uh, a comment, or suggesting future guests on the show. You can also check out my Substack, where I post original articles, I post all of these podcast episodes, and more recently with transcripts, and where you can also support me by becoming a paid subscriber. More on that in the future as well, as I'm really trying to build this entire thing out. And, as usual, see you again next week with an amazing episode.